detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. How it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlebaugh, and I am not joined tonight by Bill Van Vegel, who's my co-host, although Bill will be making an appearance of sorts tonight. Uh, my co-host tonight is Victor Rodriguez, and Victor's been on the show quite a few times. In fact, last year, uh, last fall, he came on the show with Bill and I and discussed short horror fiction, short horror stories, and this episode, which originally we planned to kind of record before Halloween, it's after Halloween, but my feeling is, you know, the, the kind of creepy season rolls through November and a little bit of December too, but we're going to uh, talk tonight our top favorite or the best, we, we kept going back and forth about this, is it the best, is it the scariest, is it our favorite, but top 10 horror novels, and Victor, how are you doing tonight? Great, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me back. I've been looking forward to this for a while, and um, yeah, very happy to be here. Yeah, and I'm so glad to, to have you on. And before we start, uh, Victor, actually, you know, you have uh, Victor is a writer, and Victor has written. Uh, you, you haven't published a novel yet, right? But you have written. Uh, you've got at least one collection of short stories out there. That's correct. I have one collection out there. It's called The Sound of Fear. And uh, if you just uh, go on to my website, we'll give you the info at the end of this show. And, um, and or just follow me at Dime Store Caesar on Twitter. You can get all the specs for that. If you're encountering me for the first time and you like what I have to say. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the latest thing I did was um, sort of a fantasy horror story uh, that's uh, published in Savage Realms Monthly in the May issue. So um, there's that. I don't think we spoke since I've read that. And that story was awesome, by the oh, way. I loved you. it. I had, thank a, you. had a great time. Uh, and yeah, so the links to everything Victor just mentioned will be in the show notes. So you can go right down there. You can get a link over to The Sound of Fear. Also, Victor's podcast where he reads the stories. And that's inside The Sound of Fear, right? Correct. But it's really cool. And then, of course, links to some of uh, where you can find his other fiction. Because uh, you you had a story published last year as well. Mm-hmm. And I'll put yep. that in the in the links. So Ooh, thanks. Thanks, man. But tonight we are talking about novels. And uh, that was the kind of thing like horror books. Well, when you talked about books, you started getting into into collections, which made me realize, well, Victor, you're going to have to come back and we'll have to talk horror story collections because mm-hmm. that's probably where most of my favorite horror actually lies. I realized looking at everything, I'm like, I read a lot of novels, but man, I really am into 
anthologies, you know, and whether that's one author or several authors, I realized like a lot of my horror reading probably was anthology books. And so a lot of things like books like Stephen King's Night Shift and things like that, or, or Barker's Books of Blood, I specifically didn't include because I felt that kind of fell out of the range of novel. Uh, I think because, uh, you know, the cool thing about short stories is they can be, you know, there's the short aspect that they need to be kind of, they can be nasty and have a bite, but you don't necessarily, it's great to have really good characters and strong setting, but you know, I think the trick with a novel is trying to get someone invested in this world and in, in the lives of these people in the story and in the events of the story enough that you're going to carry them through, you know, if you're Stephen King, what, like more than a thousand pages. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it, and if you're, you're, you're not, maybe if you're Richard Matheson, maybe you get them through 250 or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the, it's funny in, in, uh, you know, actually the, the current trend in horror writing is novellas. Uh, and that seems to be a pretty good length for a novel type idea. Uh, but, in horror, um, the shock value of certain things happening in the story kind of diminishes very quickly because the you know the reader is shocked once, and then the second time it occurs, it's like okay, yeah, that's happening again. Um, so the novella seems to be really coming to the forefront as as a, a great form for horror. And I haven't quite done a novella yet, but I'm very interested in experimenting with that. Yes, and and I notice that we you you'll have a lot of cases where novellas will be sold almost as if they're novels. You know, they're sold standalone, and uh, I mean, some of them are sold as novels. But I would, you know, I look at the length of them, and they're pretty close to novellas. Yeah, you know, um, you know, every once in a while, a book will come out, and it's like, man, I read that in about an hour, but it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, there's um there's a new book out uh, called. Things have gotten worse since we last spoke. That's an awesome title. I know it's uh, it's it's really awesome. And um, if if that doesn't intrigue whoever is listening, there's one section of the novella that says, "What have you done today to deserve your eyes?" Wow. And uh, that that pretty much describes what you're what you're into, but, but in for. But it's it's a really cool epistolary novella that uh, came out recently, and. Um, yeah. It's on my bookshelf, but I can't I have a cat on my arm right now that's pinning me down and I can't uh, <laughs> find the author name. But I never understood your pain in that uh, area until recently. And now I have two. And it's like I was doing a podcast recently and they were basically on my feet. I was like, I have cat slippers right now and I can't move. <laughs> yep. Yep. They do that. Which will be a good also a short story title. I have cat slippers and I cannot move. Oh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of uh, Ellison-esque. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Eric. Eric LaRocca wrote Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke. Yes, Eric LaRocca. I, I'm definitely going to watch him for anything he writes in the future. And I just wrote that down because, well, well, we'll get to that. But it's always good to follow Victor's book suggestions and story suggestions, I found. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. We each picked 10. At the end of this, we do have a, a Bill has sent me a voicemail. So Bill is now calling into his own show, which is kind of cool. And he left a list of uh, his his uh, titles, but I actually haven't listened to him because he said, no, you have to wait and listen. So we'll okay. be surprised. So okay. we will uh, we'll listen to it together. But I uh, want to go ahead and get started. 10, 10 uh, novels. And of course, you know, 
I, I, I'm going to admit up front, I cheated and already had a tie in there somewhere, but <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And honestly, these 10, there are so many good horror novels out there and so many influential ones and so many great ones that uh, this list in another hour, it could have been completely different if I'm being, being honest. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I found it really hard to narrow it down, you know, below 20. Um, yeah. But I, I did, I just made some choices, you know, based on, you know, these are really good, but they were also really impactful for me. Yes. Um, and and that's really all I had to go on. But, you know, don't feel bad about the tie. I have a tie for number six as well. So Okay. So go ahead and let's get started. Victor, I'll let you start with your number 10. All right. Um, number 10. Uh, this may not have been considered horror at the time, but uh, it's a book written in the 1910s or 1920s called The Story of the Eye. And um, the author is a French dude. Uh, please forgive my pronunciation, but I, I believe it's Georges Bataille. Uh, and um, it is a tour de force of the debauchery uh, type of storytelling that you can find in, say, Marquis de Sade and, and stuff like that, which was a really hot item at the time. And the reason I thought it was really appropriate to mention on the show is because I feel like culturally we are kind of going through a, a similar time in, uh, in America right now that, uh, that Europe went through at the, you know, the turn of the century that, you know, 1800s become the 1900s. Um, which is about when this appeared. Um, so, you know, there are basically all these uh, sort of cults of mini celebrity popping up. Uh, we have that now with Twitter and YouTube. Uh, and um, this book was sort of a an explosive um, cultural event when when it happened at the time. And it's still pretty damn shocking. Um, and it's, yeah, l- long story short, it's basically, it's a couple that um, start uh, experimenting with more and more bizarre sexual practices that eventually lead into horror territory. Uh, and um, it's uh, it's very memorable. Uh, it's entertainingly written. Uh, I, I can't recommend this enough if um, if you think you can can stomach that kind of stuff. Yes, and some people are going to hear 1910 and either tune out or assume, oh, that's going to be pretty mild, you know, that this is not shocking in a let's consider it was 1910 shocking, you know, the way that audiences found Frankenstein and the Wolfman from the 40s, you know, shocking. This is uh, <laughs> this is still this would still make Clive Barker and, uh, you know, Gaspar Noe uh, blush a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and I think those guys have probably read this. <laughs> I probably, probably. Uh, the sod is a good call, but I think this is even a little more demented than that. Yeah. Uh, it, it particularly, particularly I'm thinking of the denouement of this story and where it, it where it ends up. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, that eye goes through a lot. I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> the eye goes through a lot. And um, yeah, there are other books from this time that are, um, you know, rather difficult to read. Uh, but reading this is not like reading something for an English class. Like it's, uh, wow. it's entertaining as well as uh, shocking and exciting and kind of titillating at, at, at times. So 
Yeah, but no, not for the squeamish. I remember thinking, you know, thinking that you know the monk, the the old novel, the monk was about you know is uh, sort of uh, uh, salacious as it got. But I was way wrong, <laughs> <laughs> way wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. The the book that that a lot of people um, pointed me to was um, a book called uh, La Ba by uh, Huismans. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name, but similar time. Uh, also, I think he was based in Paris at this time. Uh, but, um, that is rather difficult to get through. Uh, but it does have some really racy, um, cult stuff in it. Yeah. It's hard to beat the French for freaky stuff. Um, that hasn't really changed a lot. So, but if you think, if you think that we're getting more depraved, just go back and read story of the eye and you'll realize we've just been depraved. So... Yeah, I mean the, the big the, the big uh, uh, you know Paris was a cultural center of the world yeah. at at that uh, at that time and um the thing that was going on amongst the uh the sort of the wealthy class uh was that um they were turning a lot to sort of reenacting satanic rituals uh because there was, uh, you know, technology was leaping forward at the time. It was really scaring everybody like, well, you know, what is going to become of humanity when these inventions take over our lives? And doesn't that sound kind of familiar, like, you know, in the information overload age? Um, but that's what those guys were going through back then. And uh, I think the uh, focus on, you know, uh, dwelling in the realm of what their parents considered evil um, was comforting to these young rich people because it was it was sort of the you know the evil they knew um, and uh, it, it gave them comfort from the the weird world of technology that was sort of engulfing the world at the time. Um, so that's that's kind of the the background for that. That's all I got. So going from a book from 1910, and I really did not expect this, but I have my number ten is a book from 2020 which uh, I didn't anticipate. Not only is it a book from 2020, but it was recommended to me by you last year Hmm. when we did the short stories. And it's called The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. And it was hard because I wrestled with, there's all the books that I've read so many times that they're imprinted and indelible in my memory. Of course, they're going to leap to the top of the list. And then there's the books you've read just recently. And sometimes they're also the same way where it's so indelible that you uh, find yourself, okay, is it the best or is it just the most recent? But uh, I've actually read this book twice since you recommended it to me. Mm-hmm. And I I was pretty impressed with it. Uh, you know, what's really interesting about it is that culturally it's dealing with uh, indigenous people. It's dealing with a that Native American perspective, whatever terminology you want to use. Uh, it's telling this story from their perspective, from this is particularly starts with a group of people. I think Ricky is the first character that you meet and yeah. he's a, a, a black feet man who's, he's outside of a bar, I think. And he sees these elk. It, the, the scene opens with these elk kind of just start bashing into cars in the parking lot. Yeah. And uh, as that scene continues, he ends up being beaten to death there in that parking lot. That's not really, much of a spoiler, it's the opening scene of the story. So you have this, and and the bar goers are white who beat him to death. And as he's dying, he's seeing the, 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 the images of those elk sort of reflected in the men that are beating him. 
And right off the bat, you've got a lot of things going on. Obviously, the title, the only good Indians from the 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 phrase, the only good Indians are, are dead Indians. So you have, there's a lot of social commentary going on in the story. But as the story moves forward, you then meet up with all of Ricky's friends from childhood. And it almost has a Stephen King sort of feel to it, where all of these characters start encountering uh, visions or or sightings of these elk. There is some force that's draw that's drawing all of them together, and it is, of course, based off of some prior evil, if you will, some prior discretion that they committed when they were younger. And the story eventually goes back to what that discretion was. The nature of that discretion, I think, is interesting because it connects this story not just with where man against society, which you are seeing, uh, and what it's like to be sort of the outsider in a society that has never accepted you, even though you feel like you do belong here. And then the intersection between humanity and nature. Uh, I think the way Graham Jones juxtaposes those two, those two things as he tells his horror story is really interesting. I just saw the new uh, horror movie Antlers that's, mm. uh, that's in uh, theaters now. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I'll probably have a review on the, on the podcast later. But uh, one of the things about that is, you know, it, it, deals and trades in when it gets to its supernatural, a lot of those elements that are pulled from indigenous folklore. And yet you only really have one character there that kind of steps in, explains it to the white characters and then backs up. And this story I thought was so effective because it gives you, it gives you the view of these characters in such a way it makes them concrete and real. And it brings you into their world so that one of the problems I have with horror is when horror brings in, you know, sometimes horror can be allegorical. It becomes harder to make horror allegorical when it's both the allegory is right up against the thing that's real. You know, when mm. if your vampire is a stand in for drug abuse, but then your movie is about vampires who do drug abuse. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and there's a right. couple of them out there and a few have been effective, but it becomes difficult. Right. When uh, the movie Relic from last year comes to mind, the uh, you, your metaphor is for uh, Alzheimer's, but it also involves demon possession. And they're hand in hand, you know, the Alzheimer's is actually happening. The evil is taking succor off of these things. I think Graham Jones does that really well here where the forces are concrete and supernatural. They're metaphorical or allegorical, but they tie into the lives of these characters really well. And I felt right there with these characters. I don't necessarily say that I liked every one of them, but I really got drawn into the story and his writing style is fantastic. I think I'm, I haven't read many of his novels, but I'm looking to read more of them because I was super impressed with this and it stuck with me. It's imagery and the way the story is told for me, it was super creepy in a way that very few horror novels that I've read in recent years have been. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, th- that's excellent. I-, I think you, you might've pretty much said it all, but, uh, I, you know, Stephen Graham Jones is, is a pretty recent discovery for me too. Um, although he is mentioned by name in one of the books on my list <laughs> in, <laughs> nice. in prose. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I've read mongrels by him as well, which, uh, is a werewolf gig. That's the only other one I've read. Yeah. yeah. Same here. So yeah, they're both great. So is it top 10 best? I don't know. But I would say that if you read this book this year, it will probably be one of your favorites that you read this year. Yeah. Uh, From a horror perspective. I think it's wonderful and it's beautifully written and it's just a good book, you know, even beyond the horror stuff, which I thought the horror stuff was strong. 
I thought it was really well done. Yeah, fantastic. And also, you read my mind because I was going to ask you if you'd seen Antlers because I, I haven't I haven't seen Antlers yet. But uh, the descriptions that I've read of the movie sounded quite a bit like uh, Only Good Indians. I think my experience with Antlers was lesser because I have become familiar with Stephen Graham Jones, and I was like, oh, I wanted more of this. But that doesn't. I, I'd say if you're a horror fan, go see it. I think uh, it's one of those things that's going to suffer a little bit from. I think we've all been waiting for it for so long. Yeah. And now that it's kind of come along, it's just good. <laughs> you know, it's it's right. just good. It, it should be great, right? Because right. they've they've, you know, had a year yeah. beyond what they thought they would have to edit it. So it's like your expectations, Nathan hasn't got this podcast out. It's gonna be great when it gets here. Well, maybe not, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you don't take a year to edit this. <laughs> no, not not this one. I mean speaking of other podcasts, probably <laughs> other podcasts you've been involved in. But anyway, number uh nine for you, Victor. Number nine, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris. Nice. Um, yeah. Uh, now, the first time I encountered this story was watching the movie Manhunter in a theater uh, when it came out. And I was expecting sort of a crime procedural, which it is, um, but it is so much more. Uh, and I, I find it really funny. Now, this is the, you know, the Hannibal Lecter um uh, through line uh, of of books, so this is the first in the series that you know that has Hannibal in it. Although he's a very minor character in in this um, in this book, uh, but uh, it is uh, very painstakingly written with details. Uh, you know, Thomas Harris, uh, the the author, did um, quite a bit of work uh, working with forensic police and uh it shows like you know he did extensive research on on profiling uh, a lot of that stuff comes from this book um that uh you know you got to see more often on the x-files like we've talked about a lot of this on on our x-files shows um and um it it is it definitely goes into horror territory uh and um it's it's really funny to me how uh, there is a, a huge contingent of people that don't think Silence of the Lambs is horror, but do think that Manhunter and Red Dragon are horror. And um, I have often wondered why, because I, I think they are both uh, designed to horrify in part, uh, and they do it successfully. And uh, Red Dragon, I think, is it's horrific in the way that the things that they describe the killer doing are just so unthinkable that it's, you know, it's sanity blasting, um, prose. Uh, and, and then you sink a really good thriller story into that. Like, are they going to catch this guy? And what does the, the protagonist have to do to catch this guy? And, um, it is, it, it's just a, a thrill a minute. I read it on the beach in Hawaii and it still scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think this is a superior book to Silence of the Lambs, if, you're, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Uh, Red Dragon. I love it. Uh, none of his books made my list, but they be in the, like the runners up. Uh, I I think they're all horrific enough that there are. I think the way I judged this list was books really sort of not just bother me because it, you know, it had an element, but we're really trying to horrify. And I think Red Dragon is trying to horrify. I mean, 
if anything, maybe why Red Dragon looks like more of a horror story is the nature of the Dollar Hyde character, would be my yes. guess. Is uh, you know, not that Buffalo Bill isn't horrifying, but Dollar Hyde actually there there are no supernatural elements in Red Dragon, but there are supernatural delusions in Red Dragon or religious right. delusions that uh, probably lend themselves more to a horrific kind of uh, perspective. I think Manhunter was the better of the two films, although there are things I liked about the Red Dragon adaptation, particularly that one. Ray Fiennes playing Dollar Hyde, I thought was was quite good. But yeah, none of them match up the book. The book, uh, his writing is so strong. There, you'll have many cases where some of these books that we're talking about were made into movies that sort of out, you know, outshine their source material. This is not one of them. I, I mean. It's it's excellent. It's just, it's just it is a thrill ride, uh, and it draws you right in. It's not overly, you know. There's not a lot of flowery writing. There's not a lot of elevated writing. It just gets you into the story, and uh, the procedural elements are really cool too. They don't distract from the the horror. Oh yeah, no, they're they're enthralling, and that was the, probably the first time in my life I encountered a lot of those concepts. It's like, oh wow, you know, the FBI is really cool. <laughs> they can do that. <laughs> yes. Um, so it, it, it's just a constant, like, you know, the page turnerness of it is, is just, it, you're constantly being thrilled by something in that book. And, um, yeah, uh, Manhunter is one of my top, uh, 20 movies of any genre of, of all time. It's, it's a visual tour de force. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's just, there, there's just, you know, just to, to, to kind of summarize, um, you know, Will Graham is the main character and he's an, a retired FBI agent that is a profiler. And what, what that means is he can get into uh, a killer's mindset uh, and sort of retrace steps uh, of, of how the killer thinks to uh, project forward to how he's going to do his next killing and therefore help the FBI catch him. Um, but man, uh, there, there's a scene that the, <laughs> the film studio, uh, had Michael Mann change in uh, Manhunter at the end of the movie where, uh, after he confronts Dollar Hyde, uh, he goes on to the, they, they know who the next target, you know, the, the, the Dollar Hyde is, is targeting, uh, families. He's a serial killer that, that, you know, slaughters entire families, um, just in case, you know, everything wasn't horrific enough. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, all through the movie, like, uh, Graham is getting more and more sort of into this, uh, psychotic, uh, my, or psych psychopathic, uh, mindset. And you're not really sure if he's going to be able to get out of it. And, um, the, the scene that was edited out is it's on YouTube, uh, if, if you want to look for it, but it, it, he basically goes to the next target family's house after confronting dollar hide. And he says, uh, he knocks on the door, they open the door and he just stands there silently <laughs> staring at them. And it's, it's chilling to even talk about it. Um, and the, you know, the, the father, they're all frightened, you know, inside cause they've been warned and, and, and he's like, who are you? And finally, after a really uncomfortable silence, he goes, Will Graham. <laughs> yeah. 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 That is dynamite. That's the cool thing about that novel too. And, and, and I think that, uh, that Harris maybe let to a lesser extent tries to do something when he gets to Hannibal, you know, with this line that I personally didn't care for. I thought became a little hokey, but I think he walks the line perfectly in this one. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, um, and man, I kind of wish that scene had been left in. <laughs> I know, I know. It's uh, <laughs> it's hard for me to watch Manhunter without tracking down that scene somewhere yeah. afterwards. <laughs> the so my number, and I, I I should mention now we haven't had this happen yet, but we may as it goes on. Uh, Victor and I do not know what our lists are. Um, we have uh, come to them separately. So if there are if there start to be a lot of uh, you know the same number, the same stories, we didn't discuss this at all, other than to say we were making a list. And I think at one point we asked. Is it going to be scary, best, or yeah. and uh, now it turns out a lot of the stories I have on the list I think also were some of the books that were scarier to me when I read them. Uh, my number nine is The Elementals from 1981 by mm-hmm. Malcolm Michael McDowell. Have you read this one, Victor? Uh, no, I'm somewhat familiar with McDowell, but I have not read that one. Yeah, so some people may be more familiar with McDowell, not necessarily for his horror novels, which were in like the uh, the early 80s. Uh, I think he had one in 79 as well called the amulet. Uh, but he was the screen. He's best known because he did screenplays for both Beetlejuice and the nightmare before Christmas. So mm-hmm. those are both kind of very comic and, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, gothic, but fun. You know, they, they flirt with horror, but they also stay on the lighter side. This is not quite like that, but this mm-hmm. is a Southern fried Gothic story. And it takes place like off of um, it's in the Gulf Coast in Alabama. And you have these two families, the McRae and the Savage families. They've just had this funeral for the matriarch. Her name is Marion Savage. And the opening scene, you can kind of see how this is from the guy who did Beetlejuice. I'll describe this opening scene because it gives you a feel for where the story's going. They're having this funeral. Everyone's there. It's beautiful setup. And then the, uh, the, the children of the, of the, of the deceased walk up to her and produce daggers and just begin to stab her into the, in the chest in front of everybody. This is part of a long held standing tradition because at some point in this family's history, there was a woman who had a stillborn child and she was put in the coffin and buried, but she was still alive. And so she proceeded. The only thing she had for sustenance was to eat the stillborn child. And so this, this, practice and this is just an opening this is almost just an aside this practice is how they make sure that that never happens again oh man where this goes and there's a bit of surrealism that uh mcdowell sadly passed away in 1999 out of uh, from complications with uh with aids and uh i don't believe at the time i don't think he was openly gay there's not a lot of uh there's nothing in the book that necessarily screams that there's no oh up front but there are certain elements of the story and there's a there's a sensibility to it it's very very interesting but what happens is these families after this funeral they go to the kind of their summer homes and there's these three victorian houses on the beach this is just a great image in and of itself two of the houses are sort of open you can live in them everything's fine but the third is just slowly being buried by a giant sand dune and it's just half submerged. So, you know, even that image is very gothic and very, and, and honestly wouldn't be out of place in Beetlejuice or something or a Tim Burton film. Right. Yeah. The third house that's empty has something else inside of it. Something that, again, we have a story about old familial sins and, and, and old evils that are now flourishing in a new way. And I don't want to get into a lot of that. But it's really creepy. It's really strange. It's really inventive. It's a lot of fun. 
and it's kind of just very unique. It's a good. I love. I realized I put this list together. I really love vampire stories, and I love haunted house stories. I was like, I could just have a list of top ten vampire stories and haunted house stories. This is not your average haunted house story. I wouldn't even necessarily call it a ghost story per se. But it has all of those pieces, and yet he puts an interesting, fun flair and spin on them. The same way that when Beetlejuice was released, it was a fun, different spin on the supernatural, on on ghosts and things like that. So I really love this book. It's a ton of fun to read, and it's creepy, and it's scary, and it has really fun characters. And it's as I described that opening scene, it's got a gallows humor to it that's really sort of infectious. That's, that sounds great. It's definitely going on my list. I, I, I don't think I've ever read a full novel by McDowell, but um, he, he did an introduction that I, uh, to a book that I may have mentioned on the, on the short story episode that we did uh, called The Brains of Rats. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and um, so he, he worked for the same publisher as uh, that guy um, that wrote that. And um I have been trying to uh, fit him into my to be read <laughs> section ever since. And uh, I think this just uh, just this, this just gave me an excuse to do it. Yeah, it's scary and it's gruesome. I mean, it's a it's got it's got it all. It's it's a, it, it, you know, you're going to get your money's worth <laughs> with the elementals. And it in 1981. But again, it was right at that kind of, you know, you've got. Uh, novels coming through the 70s and 80s that not written by Stephen King or, you know, Peter Straub or some of these other guys, I think, um, you know, that that kind of slipped through the cracks a little bit. And The Elementals is one I always kind of waited. I I think, you know, you'll find it in lists, but it's not one I hear people talk about a lot. But uh, that's not why it's here. It's here because I remember reading it and it was creeping the hell out of me and then going back to reading it and finding, oh, this is funnier than I remembered it. And it still creeped the hell out of me. Wow. Yeah, I got to check it out. Yeah, I mean, horror can be a very personal experience, especially reading yeah. a, a novel because you're you're really um, in that world. Like, if you have a powerful imagination, you're really in the in the author's uh, clutches for <laughs> you know an entire experience. And um, yeah, you you mentioned two two authors that so far that have been, um, you know, part of disadvantaged groups like, uh, you know, uh, writers that are gay or, uh, you know, native American. I mean, the horror is baked right in. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a horrific experience like, um, being in America in 1981, if you're in one of those groups, uh, to begin with. So it's just a, just a, a slight, um, tip to make it a real, uh, supernatural horror story. Yeah. And when you can channel that through it, that's, that's what makes these two books that I mentioned, although there's, this is less, uh, specific about it, but watching that done and how, uh, elegantly, I think in both these cases, although the books that, you know, the books are not highfalutin by any means uh i think there's a certain elegance to how they handle the horror even though the elementals gets pretty down and and down and dirty with some of the the grislier bits but how about number eight for you victor nice um yeah number eight i have piercing by ryu murakami um, (laughs) yeah uh i I don't know if you've had a chance to read this but um, i have yeah uh it really, uh, this is the same guy that wrote Audition, which was famously made to a movie by Takashi Miike. Uh, and I'm, I'm really into, I, I've been getting into um, 
J-horror literature um, lately. And, um, you know, these, I mean, one thing that's really cool about, uh, you know, writers that are translated into English are pretty much like, if you can, if you, there's a mainstream copy available in the U.S., then it's probably great because it's something that was so good that it transcended the culture of wherever these guys are from. And, uh, you know, uh, Murakami's works, I've read three of them. I've read Audition, uh, this one, Piercing, and um, uh, Miso Soup, I think it's it's the third one. Uh, They're all great. In the Miso Soup is the one you're thinking of, yeah. In the Miso Soup, yeah. That that one almost made this position. But Piercing um, horrified me a little bit more. Uh, And um, the... (laughs) The premise, uh, which is really probably all I'm going to need to say about this, um, is uh, there's a graphic designer, Japanese graphic designer. I believe he's in Tokyo. And um, he is uh, just sort of a salary man dealing with his normal family life. He has a new baby. He has a, you know, a wife that loves him. Uh, and he has these sort of uh, anxiety episodes where he goes up to his infant's crib and uh, gets a uh, a, a, a pick, like a, a an a ice pier- pick, an ice pick, yeah, uh, and and just sort of waits to see if he's going to use it on his baby, um, and that's uh, that's basically how it begins. Then you kind of get inside this guy's head, and why, you know, why is he having these insane episodes? Uh, and it goes into all the details. So, um, yeah, highly recommended, very unusual to have a, uh, a main character struggling with these kinds of issues. Um, but it is, um, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty unusual to, to read and a lot of, uh, weird situations that he gets himself into, and um, it all leads to a very uh, exciting climax. Yes, <laughs> I I can't even I don't even want to say anything about it. it's yeah Murakami. There's a couple of his books I've read too. This being one of them, um, it is intense. I did not really enjoy the movie adaptation. Oh, I haven't much. seen it. Um, it and it might be because of the translation, not not the physical translation of the of the dialogue but rather you know how some things don't uh, it, that movie has christopher abbott and mia wasikowski of all people in it uh in the film it was made in 2019 and uh they're great it's interesting but you, yeah they are it's what's interesting though is this salaryman aspect and this and this tokyo culture i think is part of what uh adds context to this you know the kind mm-hmm. of suffocating sort of stress and uh this kind of rinse repeat existence where there's no opportunity to sort of like uh decompress you know i remember a movie years ago called shall we dance about a a man that was trapped in this kind of cycle and he he decided to exercise that by going to ballroom dancing classes you know he saw the lady in the window he started taking ballroom dancing this guy doesn't quite find the healthiest of outlets to to oh, uh to deal with this but that fear now i've never had thankfully i've never had that that in at instinct but that fear that idea to even think just hearing and reading that book and 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 as a parent this idea of well what you know you're already worried about accidentally harming your child but then what if there's this mechanism or impulse you know that he wants to you know he's he's kind of wants to rip up the life that he's trapped in but the kid is the one that's like sitting there in front of him when he's thinking about it 
Yes, the con- conflict is built into every scene. Yeah, and yet all the stuff we just said is just like the iceberg surface that's going to wreck the Titanic. Yeah. We've even talked about the most weird character in the story, and I want to leave it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, and yeah, I'm glad you you brought up the uh, the Japanese uh, salaryman culture because I you know I've worked for Sony three times in my life. I worked for Sony Pictures, uh, Sony Music, and Sony Computer Entertainment. And when I was at Sony Computer Entertainment, I worked with a lot of Japanese guys, and um, they came from you know the the Sony studio in Japan. And, uh, you know, when I was burning the midnight oil working on a, a video game called God of War in, in like the early 2000s, um, you know, those guys are like, oh, working late again, huh? He's like, yeah, wait, wait till you go work in Japan. Like, you know, basically like we just camp out yeah. <laughs> in the office and we don't leave until the game ships, you know, and uh, I was like, ooh, really? It's like watching those Studio Ghibli documentaries where, you know, Miyazaki says like, you guys keep working, man. I'll make you ramen and you can sleep on this pillow. Yes. <laughs> and they're still sitting in the in the studio. It's it's real. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, it's interesting. I, I think that Americans are overworked to a degree, but um, I think the Japanese have us beat in, in that one. Well, it's built into the culture. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just there's just such a, a strong work ethic there. I, w- I would say an unhealthy work ethic. Yeah. Um you know, baked into modern Japanese, uh, corporate culture. But anyway, yeah. Um, this is a great horrorization <laughs> of that. Uh, and you know, I, I didn't think you could get freakier than audition. And I think this one is a little bit. It is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so number eight for me, this is where my tie happened and it's two books that, um, were extremely, I mean, not extremely, they were so influential. They basically built two of our, uh, not even horror icons, but two of our horror subgenres, really. And they are both uh, older, though one is much older than the other. And both of them are books, probably were some of the first true out-and-out horror novels that I read. And they were ones that once I got a hold of them, I read them and reread them, and they freaked me out. I read them both probably younger than I should have. Uh, one of them is Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm-hmm. and the other is Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. Uh, now, interestingly, one could say that they're both technically vampire novels, but each of them inspired a different monster. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Dracula. Now, granted, the concept of the vampire existed when 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 Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. Yeah. Uh, I think Sheridan Lafano's novel was before Dracula, wasn't it? Yeah, Carmilla. Yeah, which is also really good, but I I don't find it as forceful <laughs> as Dracula right. or and as gothically rich. I think the the characters. And the settings and even the story, the way what Stoker decides to do with the vampires. But a lot of the the iconography that we think of, the crosses and the garlic and all of that, uh, and, and the transformations, a lot of that more or less originated with Stoker and Dracula, uh, partially because he's channeling this story of Vlad Tepish, you know, uh, not as explicitly as some of the movie versions have. But he's got that on his mind when he envisions all of this with the stakes and everything. And so the modern vampire clearly comes with Dracula. It's a great novel. I, I still think it's our novel. It is over. It is a bit like uh, overdeveloped in terms of its drama. You know, it sometimes skews into melodrama. But mm. its imagery, when I was reading it as a young kid, its imagery is so evocative. Young reader versions. Now, Grant, this young reader version is still pitched at like a fifth grade level or something, you know. So this image of Dracula in this book is very different, too, because you have a character who uh, 
there's a weird dichotomy that you think of with the vampires, but it's really shown in Dracula in an interesting way where he has that aristocratic count kind of feeling that Lugosi tries to imbue in him, but he's also this feral monster. He's a monster. He, he's kind of grown tired of living, but the impulse, the impulse remains. And no matter how much he survives and how many things he can shove off, he's never going to be a person again. None of these creatures are ever going to be a person again. And that that concept and the way it's built into the novel is really creepy. Like some of that bounces off of the movie adaptations, but it's built in to the Gothic style. Richard Matheson's I am legend, which deals with a man who survived a, a, a fallout. It's different in, in various versions. And he's the only person left. And guess what? All of his neighbors, all the people he ever knew are fundamentally different. They essentially are like vampires. They respond to basically all the same boxes that uh, would be checked in a Stoker novel. However, there's more of a reasoning here, a sci-fi sort of reasoning for why these creatures are like they are. And yet, the way they are presented, to me, is the precursor to Night of the Living Dead. Yes. The the, the monsters in Matheson's I Am Legend, you know, zombies were voodoo-inspired characters up until this point. So yeah, yeah. so much of the zombie survival story is I am legend. And I it is, I think it's a masterclass in simplicity and stripping something down to the uh, you know, just the very basic elements and then delivering an ending that I'm not going to talk about here. Uh, and then it that hasn't truly been perfectly captured in any of the three or four movie versions, which is strange to me because it's such a cinematic kind of idea. But even the Vincent Price film, you know, they don't quite nail the, the conclusion of the story. But I think these are master horror stories, because mostly because they're so straightforward. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, man, uh, yeah, I am legend. I think that that, that definitely, uh, to, to, you know, fired up the Romero era of zombies. Um, and it really captures the loneliness of, um, being a human being in a world that has been extinguished of human life. Um, and, um, it, it's a, it's a bit of a fantasy to, to some degree. If you're an in, introvert like me, it's like, oh man, I would just like to have one or two <laughs> days where nobody would bother me and I could just, you know, read books or, you know, whatever. And, uh, uh, it, it's a really cool, it's, it's re- the, the novel is really cool. I mean, it's, it's really, it's a great uh, book in a lot of ways. It's also on my list, by the way. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's really cool because it's very easy to read. Uh, so if you're just getting into horror, uh, I highly recommend this. And, uh, Matheson is fantastic. Like he's written a lot of great stuff. Oh man. I could have had a list of almost just Matheson, not quite. Cause he hasn't written that many horror stories, but uh, his novels, even the ones that are not horror are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's one of the greats. Uh, yeah, I, I can't really say Dracula's that easy to get into, um, but because it's been filmed uh, in, in various versions so many times, I think that that the it, it'd be hard to find uh, Americans that aren't familiar with the story yeah. already. You have some training wheels, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Easier to read. But um, yeah, I think you'll find the Dracula in the book, in the novel, um, is not as sympathetic as no. <laughs> some of the movie portrayals. 
<laughs> but he's still an interesting character. They still they still have those aspects, but no, he's uh he's very much a monster. More of a monster than any of the 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 film versions. Maybe because it would have been too intense initially, and then later because some movies had already done that, you know, other movies that weren't Dracula. Yeah. And, and, and just uh, to your point, uh, Nathan, uh, I mean, you mentioned, um, that he, he, he wants to, Dracula wants to die, but he can't, he, he, you know, his instincts won't let him. Uh, that is a really astute, um, view into the psychology of a monster that exists entirely in Bram Stoker's mind. Um, you know, he yeah. got, you know, the, the fact that he's visiting death upon the world is, is because that's what he truly wants, but he can't ever get it, uh, is it's, it's a really weird, uh, juxtaposition that, um, that makes the character make sense in, in a, a very horrific way. And every other vampire novel, and there's lots of great ones out there and lots of be my runners up list. Uh, every other great vampire novel that I can think of delves into, it has that mind to delve into because of Stoker. Yes. So how about your number seven? Uh, number seven, I have a fairly recent novel. This might be the most recent one on my list. Um, it's uh, A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. Ooh, that's so good. Yep. Um, man, uh, I was totally blown away by this. The first thing I ever read by him, um, there is a novel that he wrote a couple of years after this that I like a little better, but it is not as scary. It is just cooler. I think, um, uh, the, the, the second novel I'm talking about is the cabin at the end of the world. I believe it's called, um, yes, highly, I... yeah, highly recommend that one as well, but a uh, head full of ghosts is super creepy. Um, it's a possession novel. Uh, and, uh, one of the, by the way, if any writers out there are listening to this, um, this is a very smart thing that writers do a lot, especially in in horror, to sort of prove to you that you're in good hands. It's like, oh, it's a possession story. Okay, I've already seen The Exorcist, and maybe I've read The Exorcist, and uh, you know, can it really be better than that? And um, really early in this novel, Tremblay, uh, through the characters, explains that he, Tremblay, has an inside and out knowledge of all the possession movies that have happened. So, you know, that immediately relaxed me where I was like, okay, this guy has done his homework. He's uh, ready to write something original that's going to stand out amongst all these well-known uh, works. And it does. Uh, it, 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 the way it's written is fantastic. I know they've been making it into a movie for the longest time. I hope it comes out sometime. Um, but, uh, it, the novel is truly great. It really, it really frightened me, um, at, at times there's, uh, there's something that appears over and over in Tremblay's work, which is, um, this sort of fear dream of a rising tide of something. Um, it's, it's, uh, in, in this novel, it's, it's a story. These, these, uh, sisters tell to one another, uh, and, uh, it is just the way he describes it. I would not be surprised if um, Tremblay in real life uh, suffers from this phobia in some way because it's so palpable that I, it was something I never even considered. And I was like, wow, yeah, that is really overwhelmingly uh, scary. 
Uh, and um, anyway, it's this is truly a great story. And this is the story. This is the novel where um, Stephen Graham Jones is a character. <laughs> he's um, I think he's one of the doc. There's there's a documentary film crew that. Comes yeah, you're to, right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of them is Stephen Graham Jones. And it, they must be buddies, you know, in, in real life. Um, but uh, but anyway, I he makes a special point of that. And and that's when Stephen Graham Jones appeared on my radar. And then I read Mongrels shortly thereafter. But anyway, A Head Full of Ghosts, uh, highly recommend it. Um, it's a it's a very quick read. It has it, it also it sticks the landing like a short story does. But it's also a great novel. Uh, I can't recommend this highly enough. Yes. And you remember early on in this episode, I mentioned that uh, this list could have been 10 different books at any time. And that book is one that was on the list at one point. And it would absolutely be mentioned in my runners up. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, it's cool in the way that it integrates these things, you know, like uh, it, it, it has that little bit of that postmodernism, but it interjects it in an interesting way. Doesn't lose sight of the story. That's the right. important thing. The story is scary. Like Victor says, like it's scary. <laughs> yeah. And yet those, those asides, add a dimension to it that make it interesting. And actually it's a kind of a decent lead in to my book, which is relatively new. Actually I say relatively new and I'm, it's 20 years old now. <laughs> it's almost 21 years old now, but it felt relatively new. Uh, this is house of leaves by Mark Dan uh, Have you read this? I have not yet read it. I have okay. the book staring at me right now. <laughs> <laughs> it came out in uh, March of 2000. So to me, that seems recent, but it, as I'm realizing, it's not that recent. Uh, this is another one that deals with it. Uh, is it a horror story entirely? Well, you kind of, kind of have to figure that out because the House of Leaves, even in the way it's printed on the page, even the arrangement of it is strange. It's almost like getting a book from another dimension. And I say that because... Its plot involves a documentary crew. It's about a family in there. The problem is the house is is much larger on the inside than it is on the outside. No, it's like the TARDIS. It literally shouldn't be this big. It shouldn't be able to go into these rooms and go to these places. But once you're inside the house, the layout and the architecture are unnerving. They don't make any kind of sense. And the structure of the House of Leaves, the novel, is like that. It's got weird page layouts and it has so many footnotes. I don't know if I've encountered so many footnotes since I read uh, a fantasy novel by um, Susanna Clark called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is oh, yeah. uh, also the footnotes. The footnotes have footnotes. You know, yeah, there are whole novels in the footnotes. Yeah, that's that's for a different list, but that's an amazing book. But sometimes when someone does footnotes in this way, they make them very interesting because they're a part of the process. They're a part of the story. And there's references to real authors. Uh, and, and you know, you, he, he, he trots out Stephen King and Anne Rice and and all of these other uh, people. Uh, he, I don't think he mentioned Stephen Graham Jones, but Stanley Kubrick and Ken Burns. <laughs> but then he has uh, fictional books and, and movies that were made that he's also referencing. And there's a story sort of within a story. And then... Uh, you have some pages have almost nothing on them. And then you go back and you're back in the story and it almost makes you feel a little schizophrenic. It's mm -hmm. just the structure. You're sort of like, what do I have my hands on my about, you know, about a third of the way through, I thought I'm going to hate this. 
And uh, initially, because it kind of, I felt like it was toying with me, you know, and, and that's the worst thing I think a horror novel can do, any novel can do. But when you have a gimmick and it begins to sort of toy with you and you get the feeling this isn't going anywhere, mm-hmm. but it begins with like a first person narrative. You've got this guy who's, uh, he works in a tattoo parlor and right off the bat, you kind of realize that he's, you can't necessarily trust, you know, you get the unreliable narr- narrator thing going on. You can't necessarily trust everything he's saying. Uh, he's, he finds his apartment that the guy previously before was a blind elderly man. He died in it. And so they find this manuscript and then that's the, the, then we get into the documentary film, which is called the, the Navidson record. And so it's kind of like a Russian nesting doll of these individual uh, motifs, but you get this haunted house story that is legitimately chilling and really uh, original in the way it comes together. And it touches on fantasy a little bit. I wouldn't say science fiction, but it it asks the reader to do a little bit of work. But it's not it's not one of these things that's sort of uh, labyrinthian for its own sake. I've never quite read a book that everything it's doing is very strategically posed to put you in the mentally unsound <laughs> mindscapes of these individuals that don't know if what's happening to them is happening to them. Or if everything they're experiencing is because their mind is playing tricks on them. As someone who I would say, you ask me what my greatest fear is outside of, say, something happening to my family. I would say losing my mind, you know, Hmm. because how would I know? Right. (laughs) The experience of House of Leaves has you, it doesn't doesn't ask you questioning your sanity, but it gives you the feeling of what it might be like to realize that, the concept of normalcy, the concept of expectations. Oh, I'm going to walk into this room and on the other side, that should be the wall and I can leave. That's where the horror comes in. This isn't necessarily monsters jumping out of the dark. This is a different kind of horror. It's the horror of what happens when everything you thought was reliable is no longer reliable, including the book in your hand. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's, uh, that sounds great. I, I really can't wait to read this. You know, one of my favorite, uh, pop music albums is haunted by poe yes and i believe yeah it's the same source material i think yeah. they're brother and sister like mark danilewski and oh that makes so much sense that explains why i like poe so much as well yeah poe po is his sister and um they they dealt with the loss of their father um before they both created those different works and um that album is well, I'm sorry to say haunting, but um, it, it is. <laughs> it's very memorable. It's beautiful uh, and uh, sad all at the same time. I want to reread the book and the album now. So haunted. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Yeah, great, great book. I highly recommend it. And actually, the great kind of one-two punch with the book that Victor just mentioned. So, yeah. How about your, that's synergy there for you. Uh, so number six, right? Yeah. Um, and number six, this is where I had a two-way tie. Um, and the, the the first one I wanted to mention, it's not really a novel. It's a novella, technically. Um, but it's The Great God Pan by Arthur Machen. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I ultimately came down on the side of novella. That's literally the only reason this isn't on the list. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a quick read. You could, you could probably read it in a day. Um, but, uh, it's quite dense and it's, I think it was, uh, published in 1899 or somewhere around then. Uh, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's a slightly archaic and, and hard to penetrate, but, um, 
it, it is worth the read. And I think the reason it's so it's on my list and so high on my list, I think is just because it, as far as I can tell is that's the, uh, origin point for the, um, you know, series of unconnected strange events type of framework that, you know, you know, a few years later, Robert W. Chambers did that with the King in Yellow, which Mm -hmm. is another genius work. Uh, And then Lovecraft did it a few more years later with The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, And, um, you know, these are sort of storytelling techniques that the world was barely ready for at the time. But now, I think they are very accessible. Um, and that's exactly what the great God Pan is about. Um, and, and by the way, um, people, many people railed against this book when it came out. I, I think that um, uh, Machen had to dramatically edit it. People really uh, were, were uh, violently opposed to this movie uh, or to this book being uh, available to the public at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, Machen himself was a, a Christian mystic. So he was probably sort of at war with himself on some of the themes in this book because uh, it, it gives a lot of potency to the old gods. Um, at least that's part of the story. Um, but uh, like, like Call of Cthulhu and The King in Yellow, um, the unconnected events uh, start with uh, a scientist that does this unethical brain experiment on one of his patients and so that she can see nature and the world as it truly is, okay? And I love this concept because it, it is such a, a powerful thing that he does that she loses her mind. Um, and I, I, I just the, the concept of that is fascinating to me because it's like, what if... You know, I mean, the human mind is amazing in the fact that it shuts down when it, when we see we take in something in our senses that we can't handle. So this is a very possible thing. Like, you know, maybe there's a lot more to the world than we realize that our senses are just showing us what we can handle so we can survive as a species. Um, but maybe there's more. And with the wrong <laughs> medical tampering, we get access to it. And that's exactly what happens to the character in The Great God Pan. So most of the story, um, unfortunately, is not from her perspective. Uh, it's from the perspective of somebody tracking her down. Um, and the the way he tracks her down is there are a bunch of strange events that happen in uh, in England. And eventually he figures out she's the source. Um, so uh, it, it's it's a chilling story. I think uh, Stephen King has said it was his favorite or the scariest horror story he ever read. Um, it, it's not the scariest horror story I've ever read, um, but it is very significant in horror literature uh, because it gave uh, it launched a, a thousand <laughs> stories that yeah. are all really good. Um, so, yeah, I highly recommend you track this down. And at the time, King read it <laughs> without many of these other authors, including himself. <laughs> Yeah. being around maybe it was and you know it's a different kind of terror too it is that terror that we see you know that comes up through the weird fiction right like there's this that existential dread that fear of we've always you know religion seems to be primarily a way for everyone to kind of comfort themselves and say there's something beyond death and of course god pan and several story in lovecraft and king and, and several later you know well, that's great, but what if what's after death is even worse? <laughs> you yeah. know, what if, what if this 
is the only membrane holding us back from something uh, that, that, that isn't determined by whether you've been bad or good. He's going to come visit you no matter what. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the first story I can think of where that really becomes evocatively set. Like it clearly is uh, it, the, the conclusion of this story. That's exactly sort of what's happening in a very, in a very different way than some of the stories I mentioned, but nonetheless, uh, yeah. What's the, what's the tie Victor? Uh, yeah, the, the tie is something unrelated, but it's, uh, something wicked this way comes by Ray Bradbury. Um, yes. yeah, it's a great novel. And I, well, I guess there is one commonality and that is, this is the first book I read with, you know, sort of the kids on bikes phenomenon, uh, that, you know, yeah. like you see it now in stranger things and, uh, you know, stand by me and, and a bunch of that, uh, really ET. As as, yeah. ET started with this, um, you know, there's a bunch of kids and the carnival roll, rolls through town. Um, and it's set very evocatively in, uh, October or at least autumn. Um, and, uh, I think that, uh, Bradbury was doing sort of a seasonal thing because dandelion wine was the book that he wrote before yeah. this. And that's set in the summer. Uh, and he, it's very palpable, like the season is very palpable uh, in this, but it's it's a great read for uh, for October, um, no matter where you are or when you are. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's it deals with a bunch of uh, major archetypal stuff, uh, the battle between good and evil, um, you know, what uh, humanity really means. Uh, it's handled very deftly by uh, Bradbury and... Um, yeah, I, I think it inspired a lot of works, including its own movie that's uh, decent and uh, somewhat untalked about, I think, for some reason. Um, but uh, yeah, it's scary. It's, I would say, more of a fantasy book, but there's enough horror in it for it to to get a place on this list. And it's a great novel. Yeah, I'll be talking about this one in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> in, 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 in a little bit. But the... Um... Yes, I agree with everything you said, um, and those are both awesome choices. My number six is, because uh, he had to show up somewhere, right? Stephen King's The Shining. Yes. And it probably needs almost no introduction. Again, shows my great love of haunted house stories. I think this is the third or fourth one on the list. Uh, maybe maybe only the third one at this point. But uh, The Shining, you know, we're talking about that horror tradition, and you can kind of see it as you talk about things like the exorcist. And then, you know, you know, it's like exorcist begets this uh, Rosemary's baby. And then I can't remember the exact order, but eventually you get to Stephen King who sort of, you know, is coming out of this tradition. And when you get, there are so many great uh, books that could have been on this list. Uh, The shining for me, it's, it's what you goes back to what you said about being in a personal experience. I read it when I was younger and it, and I read it uh, actually somehow uh, even though I'd seen snippets of The Shining on television, I actually read the book before I saw any movie version. Yeah, same. And so that is a very different experience because this book is very different fundamentally than the experience of watching the film. Watching the film is almost watching like a uh, uh, like a art house installation of The Shining. You know, like right. it's great. I love them, but. Uh, I don't think people realize how fundamentally different it is. And even when King gets Mick Garris to make the, the miniseries in 97, that's fine in its own right, but it lacks the kind of uh, immediacy that's in the novel of 
you know, some of these other stories are about losing your mind, but the shining is sort of about losing the battle with your own demons on one hand. And then what it's like when you are isolated and trapped with the person that just lost the battle with their demons. Yeah. And both of those viewpoints, this is what's different than the movies or the movie. Uh, they try this with 97 is both of those viewpoints being the little boy who knows something's coming, but you can't put the pieces together being the mother and the wife that wants to hold this family together, but doesn't think she can then being this father who is struggling and it thinks he's headed in the right direction and then just smashes into a wall. Uh, some of his own making and some not uh, it's, it's kind of tragedy and horror go hand in hand. The experience of reading the book was, was uh, kind of like, it was so intense. I just remember being so, so tactile and so intense because of the way King writes characters. I think that's his strength. That's what makes him, but people kind of want to align him with Dickens. And actually my favorite Steam, Stephen King stories, I was thinking about this. They are really even horror, you know, the very top tip top ones. But I think this is horror. It's probably my favorite of the horror. There's a couple that could be right there neck and neck with it. But I think the why the reason this one, he brings this one in. I think he, he sticks the landing with this. I don't always think he sticks the landing in some yes. of his novels. I think here he brings the horror. So we talked about drug addiction or, or alcoholism and then ghosts of the past. Stephen King melds them together. One feeds off the other. It's not the, the metaphor is not sitting awkwardly next to each other. Those things aren't a metaphor. They simply are deriving sustenance from the thing that's hurting this guy in his real life. Right. Yep. Uh, that's a great, that's a great pick. Uh, it, it almost made my list too. I, I really, I tried to get one entry per author and that's probably yeah. the only reason the shining's not on here, but um yeah, uh, it's it is great, and uh, you're 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 definitely right on the money on the the tipping point type thing. Uh, horror stories like that, where it's just like it's already a problematic situation, and then there's a little bit of a supernatural element or something else that makes it turn into horror. And um, yeah, uh, when I started writing fiction, um, you know, for uh, to sell. Uh, <laughs> I looked at The Shining with completely new eyes where I'm like, you know, maybe it's just about a writer that wanted to concentrate on his book <laughs> and life was just driving him nuts. He couldn't concentrate. Um, but uh, but yeah, of course, no, it's not just about that, but that's definitely part of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a fantastic book. Um, there's, a, there's a famous sequence in The Shining book, uh, which I, yeah, I read at a pretty young age, but um it's uh, the hedge animals uh, that sort of come to life uh, in the way that they, you know, they move, but only you can only detect it by the, you know, the, out of the corner the periphery. of your eye. Yes. Yes. And then when you look directly at them, there's, there's, they're stationary. Um, <laughs> but that the way he describes that is so uh, intense that I still remember it, you know, uh, and, and I, I've read that Kubrick wanted to, to do that, but he, they, you know, the special effects didn't look good enough at the time. So then he said, they settled for the, um, you know, the labyrinth, uh, hedge maze, which yeah. is in the, in the, the movie, which obviously works very well. It's also very sort of yeah. disorienting. You know, the funny thing is they do that in the 97 and it looks terrible, uh, because they straight up just give you animated hedge animals, you know, yeah. but I feel like Kubrick could have been the one guy to make it work without special effects. If you know what I mean, like based on, Based on the way he describes, King describes it, I bet you Kubrick could have made it work. 
Yeah. Yeah. But um, we'll never know. No, no, um, no, it's, it's a done deal now, but, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a great book and um, yeah, highly recommend it as well. And, and Stephen King may not feel this way, but I, for one, am ecstatic that we have two completely different versions of the shining and they're both awesome. Meaning yeah. the novel and the, and the 80, the 1980 film. And I mean, again, the miniseries is fine. It's actually enjoyable and it's, it's got some strength to it, but it's not a great horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the shining by Kubrick is definitely a great horror movie. Um, and uh, you know, why not? Like I, I understand. Yeah. I mean, it's a very personal work for Stephen King. That's why he hated the Kubrick movie, but, uh, you know, look at how many times Dracula has been filmed. I mean, yeah. the, that's, uh, you know, the, the shining has a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> and, you know, I think kudos out there to the film adaptation of Dr. Sleep, because mm-hmm. man, that kind of brings both of the world brings, brings the humanity and the Kubrick dread together and kind of, kind of realigns King to the, to the Kubrick movie, which is cool too. I know I, I wasn't the, the, the biggest fan of that movie, but um, I do think the script uh, does an amazing job of what you just said. It satisfies both yeah. the Kubrick vision and the Stephen King vision, uh, which I, I, I'm just stunned by the fact that, that they were able to do that. You've seen the director's cut? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. I thought it's that good. improved it. Yeah. It, it's good, but it's, the the problem is kind of the standing on the shoulders of giants, um, you know, just visually. Uh, I, I mean, Kubrick Shining is so amazing, uh, like the the camera work and, and yeah. the performances and everything. That there, there's, you know, it's going to be really hard to stand up next to that, saying it's a continuation of that. But oh, but it's a different director using different techniques, and uh, you know, it's Kubrick. I mean, he makes some of the best films ever made. Uh, yeah. So. Well, as an aside, I think one of the things is that movie may have actually been stronger had they not capped it with the overlook. And I think, you know, it is telling a different story, essentially. It's also frightening in its own way with its own set of villains that are also super scary, I thought. And so to bring the overlook into it is probably where you're making these unnecessary Kubrick connections. They worked for me, but I, I, I take your meaning. Number five for you, Victor. Oh yeah, um, it's also a fairly recent book. Uh, it's American Psycho by Brett Ooh. Easton Ellis. Um, <laughs> I'm so messed up. I think of this as a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, well, the, the speaking of uh, movie versus book, I mean, the, yeah, the the book is, is um, not as tongue in cheek. You know, maybe it is. I don't. It's really hard to. Uh, I feel like it is more so in some ways because he just goes. He can do that with the writing. It's like almost from the beginning. You're like, are you taking the piss? What's going on? Right. You know. So what's what's so uh, shocking about reading this book for the first time is that for the first uh, 20, 30 pages or so, um, you have this character. Patrick Bateman, who you don't like, uh, you know, he's very uh, self-absorbed. He's very materialistic. He goes on these laundry lists of description about the clothes that he wears and the, you know, the, the places he gets spices for his food and all this stuff. And you're just like Phil Collins songs. He just won't stop. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then he murders somebody and you're like, 
oh man, this is the serial, this is the American psycho. And um, he describes the killings with the exact same voice. And it is just so alien and weird to, to read. And um, uh, Ellis does such a good job of ratcheting up the, um, the, the story, which is, you know, are his friends going to survive him? Uh, (laughs) And, and how, you know, how long is it going to take for this guy to get caught? And, you know, are, he's a totally unreliable narrator and um, you're not really sure what's going on. Like, is that real? Yeah. Um, The movie's great too. Um, I just, uh, I I felt it was much more grounded in, uh, in entertaining the reader uh, or entertaining the watcher. Um, yeah. the, the, the book I felt, uh, like Ellis just wanted to scare the hell out of you. He, he just, he didn't really care if you didn't trust him anymore. Like it's, uh, it's hard to read at certain points. Like it's, it's so gory and it's so violent that, uh, you're like, I don't know if I should keep reading this, but, uh, but it's a great novel. Um, and, uh, it made it all the way to number five on my list. That's awesome. And, and a really, I, I don't know, I, I guess that's a sickness in me. I just didn't even consider it because I was thinking, but you know, did you read the mo- the book before the movie? Cause I did like a while before the movie came out. Yes, I did read it before. I and I that. think like, I like the movie too, but I don't think I like it as much as everybody else because it seemed like such a just diminishment because Ellis, let's face it, is a hard guy to really adapt into a film because of the way he writes. It's so specifically like you're like, did you did did a did a mental patient write this? You know, <laughs> like <laughs> the thing about American Psycho is it's completely riveting as this story, this horror story, you know. But right. it is when you look at it through the lens of the 80s excess, it's kind of really darkly funny, you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's like a skip and a jump from like Wall Street and Gordon Gecko and all of that. But you know, he's just killing people for real. And the glee and 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 the the the, the enjoyment he gets out of it is like it's the same as these guys having massive corporate takeovers, you know. He's you know um yes. it's fantastic. And if you've seen the movie, don't think you've gotten the full effect of the story. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think to to recreate the experience of reading the book, it would it would be pretty much unfilmable. At least at least it wouldn't yeah. be it couldn't be R rated. It's it's way too intense for that. You would need David Lynch, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Although he may make it too 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 out there. Um, <laughs> number five for me, uh, it's it's going to be one that's you know it, it probably tried and true. It's it, probably on a lot of lists. But it is, and it deals with the fact of when I read it, and um, another one that has a super influential movie, and uh, some people may find the movie better, but I read the book first, actually, uh, and that was William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. Yeah. Um, man, I like just the way he portrays it, just the way he presents it, uh, that, that aura, you know, uh, uh, the, the Baltimore kind of DC connections. I live in Baltimore. So I'm like, Oh God, there's possessed children here, but you know, uh, the, just but reading that and the way it's presented and the aura that, Oh, this is a true story or is sort of adapted from this, this true event. And I haven't read a lot of Blatty's other books, but this one, he really does kind of capture this weird, realm between a you know fictional author and almost like a journalist you know there's that 
or, or, or I don't know how you would put it. You know, you see this happening in people who make faux documentaries, but he captures this really real sense of what it's like to be in this house with these priests, this little girl's possessed. If a possession happened and they're saying, oh yeah, this did happen. You feel it might go down like this, you know, for a little bit. There's certainly those overarching flourishes of a horror that are like, okay, wow, we're in, we're in some surreal territory here, but it feels so uh, that even if you're not someone who believes in demons or possession, you have this prickly feeling of, uh, of invasion, I think. Uh, and, and just a sense of, oh gosh, what if that were to happen to me? And yeah. it goes back to my fear of, you know, what if I lost my mind? Well, what if I lost the ability to control my own body because somebody else, some demon decided to drive it like it stole it? You know, I, what are you going to do then? Right. And who's going to protect you? Well, the Catholic Church, I don't know if I trust you guys. Yeah. No, I know. It's it's a scary thing. And and actually, uh, yeah, I, to- I totally agree with you about the journalistic a- atmosphere in the book like that. Uh, I also read it before because my parents wouldn't let me see the movie. Um, yeah, same here. why I, I sought out the book. Which is yeah. a weird line for them. There was almost no line, but they were like, the exorcist, there's a line. <laughs> I, I know. And like everything my parents did, it only made me more of a horror fan, yeah. like, pre- preventing me from certain things. But um but you know the it reminds me of of uh, you know now that I'm old and I've read a ton of stuff like it reminds me of Ernest Hemingway a, a bit yeah. in in that it's you know it's like oh did did he experience these things because they seem really real and and you know uh, the Exorcist really is written that way um, and I, I feel like that makes it a highly effective a horror novel uh, you know no matter what parts of it are true or not. Um, and what the movie has going for it is that the, it sounds incredibly scary. Like it is still the scariest sounding movie I've ever seen. Um, so it, it is dynamite. And then of course, you know, uh, it, it hit at, um, a, uh, like it started a brush fire of a satanic panic in the United States, uh, after Rosemary's baby, uh, the book, then the movie started it. Um, but this really made it explode. And, um, yep, we can thank those guys <laughs> for all that. Um, and, uh, it's uh, highly recommended. I totally agree with, I, I don't know why I didn't put it on my list. I, I just did. Didn't you think it was a comedy it. too? I'm scared. No, no, <laughs> no, uh, yeah. no, it's scared. It scared the hell out of me. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I know there's books like there, there's novels like that too, that I probably even remembered yet. That's like, Oh, where, and, uh, but this is one where I think the movie and the and the book may be at a little bit of a draw. You know, yeah. I think they should read. I think you should experience them both, but they're both almost equally good, but in different ways. Yep. And and if you, uh, by the way, if you want uh, something with a similar theme, um, but uh, a Jewish uh, take on a possession, there's a movie called The Vigil that's uh, on Hulu US right now. That I recommend. Um, it it didn't get the highest ratings. Uh, it's from a good critics. movie. Yeah, it's good. It's really yeah. good. It's it's scary. It, uh, it it's a really cool script, and um, I recommend it. Yeah, I I second that recommendation. That's a st- good acting too. You know, strong. Uh, yeah, so many so many strong horror movies out there that are sort of like under the radar because they're sort of independently produced or things like. And the Vigil's one of those. I think what happens is. Netflix has a different possession movie every day of the week, you know, and, and VOD the same. And so after a while you, it's hard to sift through these, but I, I, I recommend the vigil. Yeah. Cool. Cool. How about number 
four for you, Victor? Uh, number four for me is I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. Nice. A classic. Again, highly recommend it, especially if you're just getting into horror books. Um, that will make you a horror fan. Yeah, it's got, yes. And it, and maybe a sci-fi fan too. You know, there's a lot of little different things going on in that book. But um, yeah. again, it's uh, it's just interesting how it's so um, austere in some ways and yet so effective. And uh, we kind of talked about it earlier, but I mean, as far as the movie versions go, did you, do you like any of those? Uh, Victor? Well, the the first time I encountered the story was The Omega Man with okay. Charlton Heston. Um, and I liked it, but I, I saw it on TV. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I, all, all of the, I, I've seen, I think I've seen, I, I didn't really care for the Will Smith one just because uh, I, I thought that with the star power and budget they had, they really should have done something that I hadn't seen before. The first 20 um, minutes or so were like, gearing up and you think this is going to be something and then it was right right and yeah. even they um, even put the wrong ending they have an alternate ending which is much closer to the concept but they don't even you know they don't even deal with the real meat of the story right right and um yeah the uh I, the I, I same thing you know i feel like the opening of the heston movie is really strong yeah and then it kind of loses the narrative a bit um but uh and it becomes kind of dreamlike in the last the last act but and goofy as hell in some ways, yeah. Yeah, they they all the, the the price one didn't make that much of an impression on me, uh, but I saw it later. I saw it like a few yeah. years ago. Uh, so they all have some redeeming value, but the book is the way to go, man. On this, uh, the nice thing about the price one, I do feel like in the early going of the price one, he does capture what you talked about when we talked about it. Uh, my point on the list was that it almost seems like a fantasy, you know, like oh. I could uh, I could see myself being into this for a few days. You know, you see Price kind of like it, it. It seems like a great sort of existence. You know, he's lounging around in his evening wear. He's making these wonderful meals. And then he's going out in the morning and sweeping the vampires off his front step. And you're like, what the heck is going All on? Right. All right. Yeah. Um, wow. But and so, well, my number four is Something Wicked This Way Comes, which hey. Uh, there you go. And it is pretty high. It, it's high because, you know, I, I said earlier that Dracula and um, uh, I Am Legend were probably some of the earliest horror novels I read. This one probably came before that. And it just hit in a big way because it's what you said. Ambiance wise, if you love the fall, if you love October, if you love Halloween, you owe it to yourself to read almost anything by Brad Perry. I mean, he had a whole collection of short stories called The October Country. I mean, that. That love of like his boyhood, childhood, growing up, and uh, in Illinois, and all of the and 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 just the fall, it's all through. I'm re- I'm finishing up reading the Halloween tree to my kids. We've been reading it a couple nights, starting with Halloween, and cool. uh, we it, it's me that keeps falling asleep actually, <laughs> not the kids. <laughs> and uh, and it's a very short little book, but it's it's beautifully done tale. And this is like that, but a, a, not adult, but a little bit more. It's almost an all ages thing, really. Like I wouldn't give it to really young kids, but something we get this way comes has so many different viewpoints of the yeah. characters. You have the, you have the boy, the kids at the beginning of their life with all this promise of new. And then the town that is stymied in various ways, uh, who, who, who have run up against the walls of life and don't have the things they want. And this interesting character of the father of the librarian who uh, he's an older father and he's looking, you know, he's considering that maybe he's not going to always be around for his son or can't be around. And like, 
Uh, and, and the movie, the Jack Clayton movie, is actually very, very good. It's surprising in how much of that, maybe because Bradbury wrote the script, it's surprising how much of that they get into this. But the carnival atmosphere that Bradbury builds of this, and then these creatures uh, that mm-hmm. you know, they look like people, but they are not. I think that's safe to say. And yeah. uh, and, and Mr. Dark, like that's another thing Bradbury hits, the carnival atmosphere. It's so palpable in this story, and it makes it seem sinister. I remember the first time I went to a carnival, and after I read this book, I was freaked out. <laughs> Like yeah. the whole time yeah. because this idea of this veneer that's underneath of it and the funhouse mirrors, but it's magical and it's like beautiful to read. And you're right. There's a lot of fantasy in it, but I think the horror comes through in these, these, these uh, creatures, which I think the act, you know, are referred to as the autumn people. And yeah. it's just so magical. Uh, it's so wonderful. And it's scary though. I, it's, when I read it the first time, it's scary. When I read it to big kids, there's passages that of, of Jonathan Price tearing pages out of a book in uh and Victor, I'm sure you, you think this is funny. <laughs> I like I was watching it the other night, and you know, Jason Robards is there, and you know, he was older when the movie was made, but he's ripping pages of the book and he goes, 40, old, much too old. And I thought, oh damn. <laughs> <laughs> too late. <laughs> too late. I'm fastest. So you rip a few <laughs> more pages, go for it. But uh, I think Price did a great job in the movie. It's a really good movie. But again, because of the nature of the way Bradbury writes, that's the thing. Almost more than any of the other authors we've said here, Bradbury has this very, like, poetic sensibility to the way he writes. It's fun to read his books out loud, like to the kids and stuff. I wish more. I wish his stuff was in the public domain, Victor. I know uh, because it, it's so wonderful just to read. It's it's a, a great experience just to read it. Yeah, I agree. He's a great storyteller, and yeah, he's a great out loud guy. Um, you know. Uh, uh, when when we were ass- assembling the show, I, I asked you like, is this is this a best horror novels of all time or a my favorite horror <laughs> <laughs> novels of all time? And and um, I you know I opted for for a best uh, uh you know best novels, yeah. but um there's obviously there's a lot of crossover. Um, but there there is a book that couldn't have been written without something wicked this way comes. Uh, and it's really one of the, my favorite books, horror books that I've ever read. And it's summer of night by Dan Simmons. Oh, um, so good. Yeah. Kids on bikes. Um, and it is fantastic. Like, you know, everything that happens to these kids is so fresh in my mind. And I, I've read this years ago, you know? Um, so it's, <sighs> it's very well written uh, and I highly recommend it. it's a bit of a doorstop, uh, to read, but highly worth it. So. It's it. Uh, yeah. But I don't think it's that slow though. You know, that's the thing about it. It's, yeah. it's, it's a solid story. Oh man. And you know, that's going to be one I'm going to say, you might not think of that from Simmons, but it's not on my list only because I was trying to, like you said, only put one on Yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. he's a good writer. <laughs> yeah. Same, same here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we'll see. We might be hit. Okay. So I'm, I'm really curious now. What's your number three? Uh, number three, I have uh, Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. Um, yeah, I know um, it, it is a lot of people's favorite uh, Stephen King book. Um, but uh, man, I thought Pet Cemetery was so much more powerful. Uh, and um, I just want to say, like, top level, like, a, a lot of horror uh, novels, movies, you know, um, 
is a, is about is, is sort of a, a metaphor for confronting death in some way. Like the characters come face to face with death and survive, or will they survive? You know, maybe not. But um, man, this takes it to a completely new level where it's like not only is there a confrontation with death, but what would happen if you get one up on death? You know, uh, and the 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 way he deals, uh, Stephen King writes grief in this novel is just so powerful. It it is hard to read. It makes you sick to your stomach <laughs> in like a yes. positive, I say positive in an effective way. Like it's like, oh, this is horror. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is so, it's so well done. And, and on top of that, it's just a great novel with, with awesome characters like he always writes. And, um, you know, it's been made into a movie a couple of times too. So uh, it's definitely something that is a land, is a milestone in, in his career, but uh, as, as a novel experience, and by the way, there's a lot of stuff in the, for those of you out there that have seen the, the movies, but not read the book, there's a lot of stuff in the novel towards the end that is not in the movies and it is really cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, even when they started to interject it in the new movie, they didn't do it in my opinion. Right. Like the yeah. stuff about the woods, uh, you know, what was in the woods and things like that. Um, oh, I right. mean, that's a significant part of that story at some point. Uh, and at good grief, this, you know, this might be not be on my list for one reason, because you talk about that favorite versus the greats. Like this one will probably never be my favorite because it just makes me feel so bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that's the only reason because, but I've read it a couple of times. So I don't, know, maybe I just like punishment, but like, um, mm-hmm. you know, some people are into it, but, uh, it's the, this, it, it, it's just heartbreaking and it's harder to read now that I have kids. Like I tried yeah. to reread it before the movie, the, the most recent movie, which I didn't personally care for. But, um, yeah. uh, and honestly, I don't think, uh, horror fans, I know they like the movies and the, you know, the 89 movies fine, but this is one where I, the book soars way above both the films in my personal same. opinion. Yeah, and, same. uh, same. and he hits this thing of like, he, he, he dials into some real fears and he kind of takes the monkey's paw, you know, that classic story, the monkey's paw. And he extrapolates it into like that question. Well, what if you think you've beaten death? Right. You know, and he takes the basis without remaking the monkey's paw. He takes the basis of that conclusion and just spins a horrible, horrible, like just a story about, you know, trying to hold on to your family and tearing it apart, just like shredding it apart yes. in front of you. And and I think it pro- like King sort of proves in this book that there are some things worse than death. Like you mentioned before um, that I just never imagined before I read this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. that, uh, you know. He should have been happy or not happy, but he, he should have just let it, uh, you know, let let it wash over him and grieve and experience uh, all that and uh, left it alone. And, you know, maybe the way things are in real life aren't the, as as bad as they can possibly be, even when they feel like they are. Yeah. And the idea that, OK, that they're, you know, and this is where, you know, you get into the king that, uh, you know, there's a little bit of the great God pan in here. But there's also this feeling of, you know, that yep. some things there is a natural order and some things shouldn't be disturbed. And right. I think you get that um, here, too. Um, yep. But, yeah, it, it probably should. I mean, that it was back and forth. It was between. And I, do you have any other Stephen King novels on your list? 
No, uh, this okay. is the, I, I almost had two others, but this, yeah. is, this is the one I wanted. For me, it was went between this one, uh, The Shining, and Salem's Lot. Yeah, uh, Sam's Lot is not on this list, but those are the ones that uh, was for me. Oh, yeah. um, okay, so my number three is Dan Simmons' Carrion Comfort. Uh, that's Carrion, like you know, like like dead things. Uh, have you read this book? I have not yet read it. Okay, so this is this was released in '89, uh, and I didn't read it till much much later. And it is kind of science sci-fi horror. And it kind, you know, it, it, I don't want to say too much about the story because it's such a large spanning tale, uh, but it, it deals with this group of people that have psychic powers, but really, really, uh, uh, they're so um, evasive of these powers and invasive that uh, they call it the ability that you can completely control people remotely like from a distance and you can get them to do anything like if i wanted to make you kill somebody right now victor with my mind that's mm -hmm. kind of what the ability allows you to do but they also feed off of the energy or uh the misery whatever is generated as a result of getting these people to kill someone they feed off of it like a mental vampire mm -hmm. it literally powers them and allows them to continue and sustain themselves throughout history and so you start to see how these people have influenced and dealt uh blows to the world and to humanity at large but the way the the span of the story and the creepiness of it and where these characters want to go you take stories like the dead zone by stephen king and just up the ante uh it, it's it's super creepy it's super freaky and the it tying itself into the history only makes it more compelling. Uh, mm. Then you get these uh, people who are like a, a group of investigators that are trying to go through these murders and figure out who's at the heart of it and realizing that it is this, this sort of, um, you know, shadowy group that have these abilities that are sort of turning the world at their whim. And yeah. uh, it's a vampire story, but it's a vampire story unlike any I think that you've probably read. And it, it, it takes a level beyond scanners and a level beyond some of these other stories we've seen. Similarly, I was blown away when I read it, and it was I read it many, many years later, but um, I think it's fantastic. Neat. Uh, yeah, I'm a huge uh, Dan Simmons fan, and um, yeah, I, I love a lot of – I haven't read that book, but um, uh, you know, his books are intimidating. They're, they're very thick. Uh, he's, he's one of those guys where it's like, you know, if, if he had written any one of these books in his whole lifetime, like he, it would still be, uh, he, he would be up there in the, in the horror pantheon of, of like top 20 writers. Uh, but he's written many and, um, they're, as far as I know, they're all great. Okay. So we are now at the top, top two, Victor, and it's pretty impressive. I think we've only had what so far one crossover each, two crossovers, you know, so Something far. Wicked This Way Comes. And yeah, so far. <laughs> so we're in the last two. Maybe the last two will be identical for both spots, but I kind of doubt it. Uh, so we've done all kinds of different, you know, vampires, and we've had haunted houses, and we've had, you know, a little bit, a little bit of uh, everything. So heading into the top two, Victor, what's your number two horror novel? It's Dracula by Bram Stoker. 
Sweet. Okay. Well, there's there's <laughs> the other crossover. Yeah. Very, very cool. That is very tough to beat as a, as a horror novel. Yeah, it's um, it's a little a little. I think it would be a little hard for modern audiences to get into, but um, it is the genesis of so many books that came afterwards, yeah. including Salem's Lot, which is one of my favorite Stephen Stephen King novels. So. Yeah, yeah, same here. And I, I think it, you're right. It It is, and yet I still think, particularly if you're someone who's never really read too many horror novels, I think that's why it's actually kind of good, even though the language is a little bit different and maybe a little bit harder to digest than maybe if you just handed somebody up, you know, like a, a horror, uh, modern horror novel. But I still think it's pretty good for, the, for younger audiences maybe haven't come to the horror because – it's still pretty creepy and it's still pretty engaging in that way. And it, it's nice if you can encounter it with, without knowing all of the things that have paid it homage since then, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I know my daughter read again, like it was a, like an abridged version, but she was super into it. And in her reading, it made me remember like why I loved it. You know, it's easy to kind of think, Oh, that's Dracula. It's a classic. And, the little things that never end up in the movies, you know, I like she was mentioning, oh, you know, he Redfield ate a bird and regurgitated it. And I'm like, man, that that must have been so <laughs> gross at the time. It's still gross. I mean, it's not that hasn't I would have liked to seen Tom Waits throw up a bird in, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. He uh, Waits is fantastic in that movie, though. He's, <laughs> he's he sells great. it, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just so pleased that this is the movie. Like when he's on screen, I was like, all right. <laughs> right. Like, and he's, he's wearing that crazy looking Tim Burton esque, legs, like a uh, straight jacket. that <laughs> looks like he has tentacles. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah he's, he's gotta be my favorite Renfield. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. He's awesome. So, my number two is where, you know, I just kind of completely lose it <laughs> in a sense of, of the list because I tried to be, as I was going through, I come up against it. Is this science fiction? Is this horror? Uh, this goes completely in the direction because it's probably its most uh, obvious genre isn't, isn't science fiction, fantasy, or horror. Uh, this book is Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Ooh. And have you read this one? Victor? Yes. Almost yeah. made my list. And right. And it, the thing is, the reason it's on this list is it's it's genre is probably primarily Western. Um, although you could also say it's kind of an anti-Western anti-Western or even a sort of like yeah. subversive Western. It certainly it is not painting this time in the way you would see it in, say, a John Ford movie. <laughs> and yeah. yet the reason it's on the list before I go into it any further is because there's two reasons. One is it's probably one of the novels that horrified me the most reading it. And I just don't mean horror in the sense of like, you know, sometimes you might, it, it, certain things trigger me now, right? Like as a parent, if there's a horrific child death in a book that might horrify me, but horror in the same way that Dracula's horror or things like that, you know, there is, there are some legitimate, the horror of what, happened during that time period is brought to life but it's added a gothic sort of veneer and there are things in this book that horrify me and terrify me and gave me nightmares far more than anything maybe in some of the other books we've talked about so 
Blood yeah. Meridian was one that for a moment I, I almost had to put it down the first time I read it, which was years ago. Uh, it it came out in 85. I probably came to it in the 90s, the late 90s. And I don't I was in no way prepared for it when I read it. And I it was the, maybe the second thing I'd read by McCarthy. So <laughs> and I think it is his bleakest in a lot of ways, uh, which is saying something when you have books like the road and, you know, <laughs> no country for old men, but. And no, I'm glad to hear that. Um, it's the only McCarthy book I've read. Um, but I have seen no country for old men and, uh, the bleakness that is present in that script is certainly present <laughs> in blood meridian. And I think there is true existential horror in that, especially the way he presents it in Blood Meridian. I mean, the, the, the sort of simplified ways the characters talk, like it's, um, it's very disturbing. It's, I, I agree. It, it should, it should be on this list. Yeah. It, it's very disturbing. And the second reason is it introduces, I think one of the horror villains, one of the great monsters in novels. And although there are, there are passages and you might agree with me, Victor, although I think what McCarthy is trying to do is talk in that sort of pseudo mythic voice, but there are certain passages that make you think that this character, Judge Holden, who is this big, mm. pale guy, he's hairless, but he has a kind of monstrous facade and he is monstrous through and through. Everything about him is monstrous, but, you know, he's a human being per se, but there are passages that make you think sometimes you know, almost that sort of. Uh, you know, there are passages of this book that almost could qualify as that the new weird, you know, a little bit. You know, there, there are little traces where you wonder about the judge as being a more than human character. But I think his yeah. his sins, the things he commits are very, very human, although probably one of the worst. Uh, there's a scene in here that's so terrifying in the classic Lovecraft way because you don't know what happens. <laughs> You're left with your mind to <laughs> contemplate what he's done in one instance. And, right. uh, but the story, the basic story is the, the main character is, is you only really know him as the kid that's popular in, in McCarthy's novels where lots of times they're just known as a trait, you know, and, uh, he's a runaway who is, he ends up meeting up with this judge in Texas. And it's actually like a religious, like 10, one of those tent revival kind of things. And, uh, you've got, what happens from there is just insane. And they end up going through these different elements. I guess there's no other way to say it, but these sort of travesties of history where, where crimes were committed against, you know, uh, the native Americans uh, against different groups of people all through this story, the judge is right there. And so is the kid. And th there aren't any heroes in this novel <laughs> at, right. at all. And there's basically monsters, and victims and some monsters who later become victims and above it all in the hierarchy there's there's the judge but the way some of these atrocities are captured like there's uh there are a couple of scenes here that are just really really brutal and you kind of keep feeling like the novel keeps kind of pulling the rug out from under you and i the thing about it, though, is it's so well written and it's so well characterized. It doesn't feel like a shock novel. I don't know if you felt that way, but I never did. I thought it kind of captured the sickness and the and like the heartache of what was happening in this time without sort of being like a book of grotesqueries, per se. Uh, yeah, no, it, it I, the, this uh, book ripped my head off. Like, I didn't really know what to I, I knew that. He he was mentioned like McCarthy, uh, uh, McCarthy was mentioned by uh, 
a couple of grimdark fantasy authors that I liked. And I saw right away why the, they mentioned this book, because a lot of, you know, stuff in, in fantasy context, you know, sort of comes from this type of situation. But um, yeah, I, I just was uh, sort of flabbergasted by the, the things that were, that were happening, but yeah, it, it doesn't prepare you for the brutality. It just kind of moseys along. And then all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, um, it's that kind of book. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if Randall flag met this guy, he would just say, you know what? I'm going the other way. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, he's that, he's that much of this sort of, uh, character, but he overwhelms the whole thing. And, and, and rightly say so. it's, it's almost as if you took that, all of the the hate and the vindictivism and the and and the destructive nature rolling around in the old west and you sort of combined it into a person and gave it flesh uh that would sort of be this guy yeah. <laughs> to judge but i can't really recommend it enough i get you be warned it's a strong novel but it's um i don't think it's exploitative it's just very stark i think would be the word i yeah. would use yeah yeah, I agree. So that's number two. And now as I talk about it, I almost wonder why it's not number one. But <laughs> on <laughs> on the number one, and I'm I I'm curious. I feel like we might have the same number one. But uh Victor, your number one horror novel. Well, we mentioned this author before, um, but not this book. It's Song of Kali by Dan Simmons. Oh no, it is oh awesome. Awesome. Yeah, um, this is a, a book that is very easy to read. Uh, I read it in about a week on my lunch breaks at uh, a Barnes and Noble back when we had those. I don't know if they still exist. <laughs> I, uh, they do. We have one nearby. My my daughter and I go and we have coffee and read books just like that. <laughs> oh yeah, um, yeah. It's I I love the doing that in in those kinds of places. But um, yeah, I I haven't been in corporate world for a while. Uh, but, uh, that is one of the things I miss. Uh, but man, this is a, it was written in the 1980s. Uh, it's a book that HP Lovecraft would have loved if he had been alive to read it. Um, it's, um, it's, it's about a journalist that goes with his wife and young daughter to Calcutta, India and um, there are elements of dark fantasy. Uh, the you know the old uh, Iron Age Indian gods um, that may or may not still be alive in this city, um, and it's filled with horror. But the horror is delivered in a very odd way. There's there's a, a palpable sense of dread throughout most of the book, and you know you find yourself screaming at the. Uh, at the main character going, you know, what are you doing? You know, don't, don't go there. Um, but, uh, he's an investigative journalist and, you know, that's kind of what he does. But, um, there is a scene about two thirds of the way through the book. That is a complete gut punch. And it is the single most horrifying thing I've ever read in my life. Like it's just the way it's phrased the way it happens, the the way it's delivered at that time in the plot, like it all, it, it's a masterpiece of brutality. <laughs> um, so 
If that all appeals to anybody listening, uh, please track this book down because it is dynamite. Like it is the the atmosphere is so palpable. Um, it it it's definitely a, a cosmic horror type thing. It's it's a weird, uh, you know, weird fiction. Um, but it's also you know current day. I mean, when it was written, uh, horror. Uh, so yeah, I highly recommend it. I very much doubt it'll ever be made into a movie or TV, but it's worth reading. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, um, you know, if you want to have a nice feel bad, like Thanksgiving weekend, <laughs> do you read this and blood Meridian back to back? Um, incidentally published the same year. Oh, wow. <laughs> 1985. It is a lot of, it's a lot of dark fiction actually written in 1985. Incidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I, you know, and it's funny. One thing, Dan Simmons are now has three entries on this list. He's beaten wow. Stephen King. <laughs> wow. He's um, great. But no, 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 maybe not. Did, did you, I think you maybe only mentioned one of his other novels. Yeah. So yeah, the summer, he, summer of night you mentioned, but didn't, it wasn't on the list legit. He, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I really so, tried to, to do, uh, every author once on, on okay, this list. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So Simmons is on here twice, at least with song Cali and, um, Carrying Comfort, they're they're both excellent novels. Um, yeah, I think this one's probably a little bit more traditional horror, and I would say it is. It has the gut punch, you know. It's uh, there's there's some of the same things that that horrify me in Pet Cemetery or in this novel. You know, yeah. that's one of the reasons I'm probably not going to pick it up for a reread yeah. in the next year or two. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but it is highly highly recommended by me too. Uh, okay, so my number one is probably more conventional. It's probably one that you could find on a lot of lists, I imagine. I don't know. Uh, but And it's funny. I feel like maybe five, ten years ago, mentioning it, you still have some people asking what. But now if I mention it, I'm going to have to do a little bit of explanation. Mm-hmm. This is The Haunting of Hill House by mm-hmm. Shirley Jackson. Yeah, And we've had numerous adaptations of this, obviously, with uh, – the 19, which I still think is the best version, the 1963, I think, version that Robert Wise directed. And then we had one that Jean Devant did in 1999, which is closer to like the live action uh, Haunted Mansion movie, I feel like, <laughs> than, than, uh, than an ad- adaptation of Shirley Jackson's uh, Hill House. And then, of course, we had, which I thought was fantastic, but not as Hill House-like was the uh, TV series that Mike Flanagan did. The Haunting of Hill House for Netflix a few years back. Yeah. Uh, but, but this is the original 1959 novel, and it has a lot of the same elements. It's very much, I think, the reason I appreciate this one so much. Again, this, what I would probably say, was very close. Uh, around the time I was reading Matheson's I Am Legend, I was reading Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And this book, like freaked me out in a completely different way than most of the books I've mentioned here because it got into my head psychologically, which I think is one of the advantages of Jackson's writing. She writes in this very sort of folksy sort of way on one end, but then there's also almost you get a kind of scholarly bent other points in the, in, in her writing. Uh, and somewhere in between, she's telling the story of this doctor who researcher who's bringing all these people together to really you know, study the paranormal in a serious way and find out if they can determine that the supernatural is present at Hill House. And in the midst of this, you've got this character named Eleanor who it's the house or 
the suggestions that are going on due to Montague and everybody else uh, that perhaps everything is just a little too much for her. And she starts to become undone. And that line between sanity and the supernatural, I feel is like so well threaded. I mean, this obviously is a book that had heavy influences on many of the things we've already mentioned on the, the list, not least of all, of course, the shining, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like Stephen King's The Shining is very much I don't it's not a, an an homage I think but is definitely sort of a a nod toward Shirley Jackson and The Haunting of Hill House. But for me it just it's almost the perfect horror novel uh because of the way it uses suggestion and ideas it sort of burrows into your mind. I felt like it was a a book that I couldn't shake. It wasn't just that you're reading in the dark I got to sit this down or or that kind of thing. It was something that just kind of kept nagging at me uh you know, we mentioned those those hedge animals in The Shining at the periphery. I feel like mm-hmm. these ideas lurk at the periphery of your mind when this novel is over. And if you are someone who hasn't read a lot of horror and you pick this book up, I would actually argue that even if you've seen every movie version of this and have not read the novel, there are still things in this book that are superior to the film versions. And it is a different experience in and of itself. But for me, it's The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great one. I believe it or not, I have not read that book. Um, oh, it, it's it's a it's a singular experience to the other other uh, ma- you know the other material that's been adapted. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I you know there's a there's a really cool movie that was made a couple of years ago called Shirley about um, Shirley Jackson and her writing process, and um, I, uh, I it's not horror. It's a, it's a drama, but I highly recommend it. It's it's um, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. And um, yeah, uh, what I wanted to ask was, you know, one thing that always kind of creeped me out about The Shining. Well, I mean, there are many things, but um, <laughs> is the uh, that the ghosts appear as, uh, you know, humans like they appear as, as, you know, partially dismembered humans and stuff like that, as opposed to spectral, you know, see-through types, uh, you know, uh, sheets or, or, or that sort of thing that had been done in, in movies tons of times, um, is, and, and I mean, from reading the shining, from what I recall, um, it is also like that, that you can't really tell who the ghosts are and who are, who they aren't, um, is uh, is haunting of Hill House at all like that? It's a so for one thing is I've read the book many times. It's been a few years since I've read it, and of course some of these things do dovetail. But my memory of the haunting of Hill House is that it's not quite like The Shining, where you have these people, like you said, is this a real person or is it a ghost? The ghosts, as they show up, to the extent that they show up, if they show up, there's a, it's a lot of. Is this a poltergeist? Is this in her mind? Is it telekinesis? So there aren't really in my my memory of the novel itself. That's the one thing that is separate is there is this is very similar to the the 1963 version, which obviously couldn't really afford ghosts. You know, I think in the same way, there are no sort of specters, I think, that show up. There are there are images and suggestions. There's a lot of things going on similar that were going on in um, another book that probably we'll mention here. When I get my own mentions, which is the turn of the screw. Oh Henry yeah. James. I think that you, the way the supernatural is handled in this is, is a little bit more explicit, but on that line of things more than say what King is doing with the shining. So right. okay. 
which makes it actually kind of freakier because there's an uh there are moments though there are things if you think of the scene in in uh it's and it's both in the turn of the screw and it's in the the film version the innocence there's a lot more stuff sort of like that scene where they see the ghost uh across the lake you know the lady sort of hazy on the other yeah. side of the the marsh it's things like that for the most yeah. part is my memory of it so i don't think there's a lot of necessarily interacting the way that say uh, and not to give spoilers about any of these stories, but you know the way that Jack Torrance interacts with elements of the Overlook Hotel in the novel and in the film versions, uh, I don't believe that happens here in that way. Okay, yeah. Well, that sounds great. Uh, you know, I'm a, a huge fan of um, the Lottery, uh, that uh, short story that uh, Shirley Jackson wrote. Um, that's I read uh, that to my kids this summer. <laughs> yeah, it's they it's had an no awesome... idea where it was going. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think uh, last year uh, when we were talking about horror short stories, I may have mentioned the Summer People that she wrote, which is uh, yes, it's another w- kind of a unexplained phenomenon type story. Um, but uh, I'm really looking forward to reading this uh, sometime soon. So yeah, thanks thanks for the review. I'll, uh, I'll I'll pick that up. And although it's more gothic than horror, I'd also recommend uh, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. That's, oh yeah, uh, that, that she wrote. That's also uh, a really good. She's just a she's a she's a good author. She was yeah. a good author and has and and a great s- short story writer as well. So Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Those are the top ten, and we promised that we would get to the voicemail by Bill Van Vagel. But thanks to the wonders of podcasting, we have better than a voicemail. I'm what? gonna just use the old Ouija board here. <laughs> The conjuring board and bring Bill Van Vagel himself oh. in into the show. So here we go. We're gonna summon the ghost of Bill. <laughs> oh wow! Oh my god! Oh, wow. oh my oh. god! Oh wow! You're Come here! On. Wow! Yes. It's like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You know, I just kind of show up. You know, I thought I had summoned uh, <laughs> Hannibal Lecter there for a minute with all that tongue waggling. I just had some fava beans. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I gave up my Chianti four years ago. But we, we, we summon you in the middle of lunch? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, through uh, circumstances that were favorable to the podcast, I am now able to be heard live as opposed to a pre-recorded tape. Now, Which we have still not heard. We really don't know what's in that pre-recorded <laughs> tape. You could, have, you could have done anything. I, 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 I gave everybody loves and kisses and positive vibes. That's yeah. all I did to all good, my good. listeners. <laughs> uh, so I love the topic that you guys were on. And... I'll first confess to everybody. I love reading. I've loved reading from a young age. And it was one of those things. I was a bit of an introvert growing up. You'd never guess it now, but trust me, I was. And books was were always kind of there to help me out, which I'm sure a lot of people here have dealt with. We've all got our insecurities or we just love our books. And for the longest time, I took a lot of nonfiction books out. And then I would get into fiction and going through late uh, elementary school and into high school and into my university years, books were always a nice fallback to me. And I, I kind of fell into two categories. One, I, I, I think at my local library, I took out every sports book possible. So there was my nonfiction sports and history books. But I loved the novels. And I always, always had an affinity to scary stories and some sci-fi stories and some fantasy stuff just to kind of get myself away. 
And I didn't do a top 10 list per se. I just kind of jotted down books that, you know, some of these, honestly, I haven't read in 30 or 35 years, but the fact that I remember them means that they impacted me, obviously, in a fairly strong manner. So uh, I just have a series of books and stories. And I was trying to think at the beginning of my reading career, per se, what were the scary ones that started with? And I don't know about you guys, but for me, the scariest ones that I started with were those little golden fairy tales with the <laughs> with the golden side, those Germanic Hansel and Gretel, Red Riding Hood, Gingerbread Man. Boy, were they scary. If, oh. if you read those actual German versions, which I did much later, holy shamoli. Like Hansel and, <laughs> yeah, no Hansel and Gretel talking about cannibalism and pushing grandma into the oven. Oh my, you know, mm. when you're, when you're four, you're like, ah, look at grandma fall in. But when you're not out, you're going, holy crap. <laughs> so I remember those really well. And, you know, Red, Red Riding Hood, we discussed a little bit in Strange Frequency with the song about it. But Red Riding Hood's a, a, a scary creature if you really want it to be. So now uh, in going, once I became a bit more of a mature reader, I'd say grade four, grade five. I remember very distinctly, and the advantage of me coming in now is I didn't hear what your guys one through eight are. So I don't know if I'm stepping <laughs> on toes or anything. One of the beginning uh, was obviously the scary score stories to tell in the dark, the Alvin Schwartz series of novels, yes. which a great yeah. cover art, great short stories. Uh, but it, even as an adult, they're a cool read. So the other one I read uh, under the age of 10 or so was The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Robert mm -hmm. Louis Stevenson. I always remember the yep. cover was amazing and it kind of drew you into reading it. And I think I had to read it like it took, I had to take my time because at that age, it was probably a 250 page book. It took a while to get through, but I'll never forget reading that one. Uh, That's a great one. It's a great. Have you read that one, Victor? Yeah. Yeah. It's really, That's fantastic. Fantastic book. And, and I would suggest Nathan that maybe that might be one to read to your kids because I think they'd really get into that. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a good call. We did Treasure Island, so that's an excellent. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a good and one. And so going up through, I remember like grade nine, grade ten, uh, reading Bentley Little's The Store. It, it, oh yeah, and that's kind of got odes to another one I'll reference later. But it's basically a store in Arizona that opens up, kind of like a big box store, and you can get everything you want, but you might get more. <laughs> that's an awesome tagline <laughs> so you know if you've never bentley little i was just reading on goodreads.com apparently the the novel is tough to get a hold of but i remember having the soft cover as you know like a 12 13 year old just inhaling the stuff uh another one i remember reading everybody gets into their dean Koontz phase so i read i've got all <laughs> kinds of dean Koontz, and i'm sure you guys probably mentioned it the one obviously that stands out that most people will know is watchers which uh, about the dog and the other creature out roaming around with, you know, shady scientific experimentation going on and uh, led to a series of movies with Corey Haim, some better than others. But the, <laughs> the, actual, the actual novel itself, I thought was pretty good. Um, I don't know if Kuntz went on to pen any of any more of the Watchers 2, 3, 4, however many, if he was involved in the screenplay. I, he did not, I don't you believe. Know, no. you kinda, what, what became of it became of it. Yeah, I don't think he wrote any. You know, he did later on. He has done series following like the the odd character from Odd Thomas and things like that. But I think that uh, uh, he's done some series, but I don't think he wrote any like direct sequels to like some of those earlier yeah. horror novels. And, and I mean, but this is the first mention. 
Uh, oh, this really? is the first Dean Koontz mentioned. Oh, yep. Okay. And and the thing with Dean Koontz is his story is similar to a lot of like uh, Dean Mc, uh, like Bob McCammon and Stephen King and stuff where, you know, they were just writing for the magazines, the adult magazines, the sci-fi magazines, you know, they were just pulling stuff out to try to get published and get noticed. Right. So this, this very well could have been an incarnation of something better to, to come down the line. Another one I remember reading in high school that I really loved. And I don't know if you guys mentioned Peter Straub and, and that was ghost story. Yes. And, and I remember reading ghost story and it's one of those, it, it's where I instituted my 200 page rule. You can read the first 200 pages of a book. <laughs> and if it sucks after 200 pages, okay, you're done with it. But it was one of those stories that was my first kind of incarnation with a slow build. And the first, honestly, first 150, 175 pages, it's like, what's going on with these old guys in this town and blah, blah, blah. And then what's kind of hit that 200 page mark, it really picked up. And it's an atmospheric, literally ghost story. And I honestly, I'll tell everybody, honestly, I haven't seen the movie with Fred Astaire and those guys. Um, I don't know if have you guys seen it, uh, Nathan or Victor. Yeah, is it? In, is, yeah. is the movie any good? Yeah, it, it um, it's pretty good. I, I saw it at a weird young age, so I think I. <laughs> Me I, too. Yeah, I missed kind of the whole point about like regrets when you're older, um, but uh, it did scare the hell out of me. And there are some awesome makeup effects that are super yes. creepy in it to so. this day are creepy. Um, I had some, yeah, it was a very, uh, f- a formative movie for me. I had a lot of mixed feelings about Alice Creage after this, uh, film because <laughs> mm-hmm. you see a lot of her and then there are some scenes where you're like, wow. And there's some scenes where you're you know, horrified. <laughs> uh, but the novel is very good too. I would, you know, it was definitely kicking around on the honorable mentions list, uh, ghost yeah. story. I think it's very I strong. I think to that point in my life, it was probably the longest book I'd read. I mean, it's not super long, four to 500 pages, but when you're like 15 you're like that's a decent sized story i i recently um in the last recently i said last couple of years uh, i don't know if you guys mentioned john saul no i don't i remember john saul though john yeah. saul wrote a series of books called the blackstone chronicles where something usually showed up at somebody's front door or in the mail and and the object that was received by the person kind of told a story and let's just say either you figured it out or something tra- tragic happened. And so there's a whole series. I think there's four novels. I honestly picked it up in a thrift shop and uh, I'm looking for a couple of the others in the series to finish it off. But I really like the, uh, the first book or two of that one. Uh, and of course, in high school, I got into my Clive Barker uh, cabal uh, books of blood. <laughs> yep. I don't know if you yeah. guys mentioned that one at all. But I, I really, I remember a cabal specifically. It's not, it's kind of horror. It's kind of fantasy. It's got a bit of a, right. a, a WTF element to it, but it was a great adventure story, at least when I was in high school. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. oh, go ahead, Victor. Uh, no, no. I, yeah. I was just going to say, um, yeah, we, we've, di- we've discussed a couple of fantasy horror crossovers and uh, that's exactly what I think of when I think of Cabal. I, th- I think that's my favorite book by uh, Clive as well. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's definitely um, it's both. It's both. It, it's because uh, it, it's fantasy in that the monsters are not meant to be frightening, but the humans are. And um, I thought that was very it was very clever the way uh, Clive did that. Like at the end of the 
book, you're just like, huh, you know, maybe the outsiders are the good guys. You know, <laughs> it's a, it's a great message. And what is cool about Cabal, you know, that's, that's one of the things I was going to mention in the honorable mentions because Clive, none of Clive Barker's novels were on my list, but what I, interesting thing is Clive was one of the first ones I went back to try to make this list. And we didn't include any, um, like the books of blood. He, Barker's written lots of horror stories and there is one on my honorable mentions list. But when I started looking at his novels, I feel like I was like, Oh, you know what he really does for me come down on the side of dark fantasy. Now, put three darks in front of that fantasy but <laughs> it's like you said bill he tells great adventure stories i mean a magica and weave world i mean he creates these i mean they're they're psychosexually confused to the ninth degree but i mean they are wild worlds and he inhabits them with these characters that you would not find anywhere else you couldn't find anywhere else the cool thing about cabal which was made into the film nightbreed is that you're right the monsters are sympathetic or they're the heroes i should say and yet they are complex enough they're still monsters like this isn't sort of like they're not completely misunderstood they have the means to fight back and they are they are not you know it, 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 they are definitely wild creatures but you're right the humans are worse yeah I, like yeah. i mean the fact that you know i can't remember all the fine details of the book but i, I read it in 1987 and it's still you know 24 years later yeah. still there's obviously something to those kind of books, you know? I, yeah. I I think for me, that's one of the reasons that I have maybe a disadvantage coming to the films of Clyde Barker, who he, you know, I think Barker, and, and, and I can see why, because he wanted to kind of hold on to them, you know, he and he'd had some bad experiences. He directed a lot of these movies, you know, like Hellraiser and Nightbreed. And a lot of people love Nightbreed. And I think it's a fun movie, but when you, I read the book first and it's like, the movie's frustrating because of how wild and, and, and sort of, you know, his books are very difficult. I think to translate because they just, they go so beyond the pale at imagining things. I mean, they are really and some to, top tier fantasy I think to fully encompass his vision. He'd need a budget that he's just not going to be given. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, like yeah. even one of his great short stories we talked about last time, uh, was it in the Hills and the, um, in the hills, the cities. <laughs> in hills, the cities. Like, you, you know, the amount of money you would need to do that correctly unless you did an animation. I'm going to throw something out here, and I think I mentioned in one of the other podcasts. The thing about Clive Barker, and this is going to sound weird for some people, is he's got some great young adult novels out there, too. Um, he, he did a great book that's a good – that I I actually plan to read to my kids called The Thief of Always. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's excellent. It's much more. I could see Leica or somebody making that. Uh, uh, you know, it's a little darker, but it's a, along the lines of like a Neil Gaiman level is where I would put right. Thief of Always. And he did the Aberat series, which are fantastic adventure stories that I would yeah. also put at about a PG-13 level. And they're just as wild as his other stuff in terms of like the imagination. A Clive's an, he's, he's a great author. I don't necessarily know if I love all of his stuff, but man, you can... I don't know that that guy's ever phoning it in when he writes a novel. <laughs> I, I have forgotten no, about I, The Thief of Always. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, That's a good one. Um, yeah, uh, but before we talk about the f more fantasy stuff a little more, if anybody out there is interested in reading a, a mature um, Barker novel, I also recommend Cold Heart Canyon. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It, it's it's really good. It's, it's sort of um, based around Hollywood history. And, uh, and it's a bit of a romance, but it's, it's also definitely horror and there's tons of monsters in it and other worlds and stuff like that. It's definitely worth 
reading. Um, but yeah, I, that's that's funny, uh, Nathan. You read my mind. I, I was just going to say there's definitely some common ground between Neil Gaiman and uh, and Clive Barker, and um, it's the fantasy. You know, like Barker's got a little less fantasy in his stuff, and uh, Gaiman's got a little less horror in his. <laughs> yeah. Barker's a little more likely to rip your head off and then wear your skin around or something. But, um, and then, you know, this is kind of dovetailing in the honorable mentions. I, there was one of his novels that made my honorable mentions. That was the damnation game, which I think was probably legitimately falls right into the horror category. He wrote it in between the books of blood and the Hellbound heart, which is more of a novella, uh, which obviously inspired a Hellraiser. but, um, it's really good. It's a kind of cool take on like Faust on the, you know, one of those, the devil's got your soul kind of stories. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've, I've yep. got a couple Neil Barker's or Neil Barker, Clive Barker's just. <laughs> you just combine them into one, <laughs> Neil Barker. <laughs> I have a couple oh, of his. Cool. Like whenever I go to a thrift shop, whenever I'm traveling, wherever I go and donate clothes, I'll buy a couple books yeah. to support local charity. And so I've got like more novels than I got time in my life to read. But I've got a couple <laughs> of Barker's sitting there. And I got to tell people that because my life is busy now being a dad and being a teacher or whatever, all of ours are, all of our lives are busy. I only get the chance really in the summer to read. So in the summer I inhale them while I go camping or sitting in the backyard. And then I lay dormant for 10 months and then I reread as much as I can in two months. One, the other one, I smiled when uh, Nathan said the haunting of Hill house, because I had that written down. I remember in university reading it, almost reading the whole novel on a, bus ride or a, a train ride home oh, a- and cool. it, you're, you're gonna love it victor because it's not a tough read it's it, it's one that almost it's almost like a choose your own adventure what would you do everybody get these yeah. invitations and are you going to accept it and then accept the challenges and things that happen along the way so it's it's an easy read but it's a good read you'll like it nice. um and then i get into the uh, a series that Everybody, I know, I guarantee, whether you like horror, whether you like fantasy, whether you like sci-fi, whether you just like reading, you've gone through your phase. And that's my Stephen King phase. And what first grabbed me with Stephen King was not Carrie. It was not Salem's Lot. It was his short stories. I love the short stories. Yeah. I love the 20 to 50 page because you can tell so much within a short amount of time and it's not a lot of filler. So yeah. I loved Night Shift. Uh, different seasons, four past midnight. I, I I would read the cover off those novels. I really, really loved them. When I was in high school, I really loved the Dark Tower series. I inhaled those books. Now, are they horror? No, but they're Stephen King and there's elements of fantasy and there is some killing involved in it. And I really liked it. And I remember taking my family to the drive-in when the movie finally came out. Now, I was a little disappointed just in the sense of, they kind of combined like three of the novels into a 90 minute movie. Mm-hmm. And I was in a 90 minute kids like, movie. Kids <laughs> was movie. So yeah. weird. <laughs> and I was like, there, there's so much more to it. Like you, you could have, I'm not one of these people that likes it drawn out. I like my 90 minute movie, but you could have made three 90 minute movies that were better than one 90 minute squeeze them all together. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you guys thought of the movie. It, it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> haven't, haven't seen it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I did like the, some of the action scenes that were in the trailer, but it wasn't yeah. quite enough to put my ass in the seat in the theater. Well, for me, it was just a chance to get out of the house. So yes, I, <laughs> I went. He, here's where I land on that movie. It's a huge, it's an enormous, it's a cataclysmic disappointment as a fan of the dark tower. And yet 
there I was watching a dark tower movie with my, at the time, like seven year old and not feeling bad about it. And, 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 and pointing out the little things, the references to the great turtle and to the, you know, uh, all these little King nods. So, and, and watching Idris Elba get to play the gunslinger, um, which I mean, you want to see an awesome movie he's in right now, go see the harder they fall on Netflix, but that's, a, that's an aside. So it's not a complete waste, but it's, it's close. <laughs> I, just, I, I really just think maybe the uh, studio said we got to, you know, squeeze it all into one and see how it is reacted to the audience. And I just don't think yeah. it, I think it missed the mark. If you're someone out there who has not read the Dark Tower novels and you want to get any enjoyment out of this movie, just go watch it. Now, if I could have like pulled all my memories out and just watch it as a like if you if you only thought this Dark Tower movie was just another sort of like quick uh, young adult fantasy movie, you'd probably get a couple hours enjoyment out of it. I mean, from that perspective, it was kind of like, fun. It's, not, a, it's but, not an awful movie, but it is not. No, no, it is not a spiritual representation of the books. Not, not in any way. <laughs> not in any way. But, now the other, the other, uh, the other Stephen King books I loved. I loved the Bachman books because they were they were almost novellas. They're you know they weren't that long. Yeah. The Long Walk yeah. is a bloody amazing story. I don't care. Uh, how old you are, or how young you are when you read that book. But the, I think that's my favorite out of those. Yeah, 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 I think it probably is too. And it's probably the best known uh, of all the Bachman books. But And the other one, the, the longest book I had read in my life before I hit university was Needful Things. And, and Needful Things is, I don't know, I'm going to say six to 700 pages. And I just got engrossed by the needful things. I loved Leland Gaunt. I loved that fact of the curio shop and your dreams can come true if you bought it. And then when the movie came out, I, I really liked Christopher Plummer in that role. I even the you mean you mean uh, Max von Sydow? Oh, sorry, Max von Sydow. Oh, they're they're one in the same, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, Max von Sydow was great, and all the and all the other roles that came with it, and. I, I, even to this day, I'm still not a fan of the ending, at least in the novel. I thought the novel, the ending, eh. but the journey to get there, I thought it's one of the sum is better than the whole of the parts kind of deal. I love, I just love that book. Uh, hmm. um, the last one I'll get to, and it's one that you guys probably have alluded to before. And you probably hasn't reached any of your top 10 list. And it, and it tells about my sensibilities as a horror fan. I love Jack Ketchum. I think there it is. <laughs> I think Jack Ketchum, Ketchum gets a lot of crap. And if you're not into him, I get it. But I am one of that section that is into him. I've only read two of his books so far. I read off season, which I picked it up. I think at Walmart for $5 on the discount uh, uh, pile of the of novels. I grabbed it. I think I read it in like two days. Love the book. Wow. It's about a, a people that go up to a cabin and they're up there partying and drinking and rousing, carousing, doing whatever. And they run into a town where there's people living there where there are cannibals. That's all I'm going to say. L love the story. I, and now I, apparently they made like a really low end uh, movie interpretation of it. I haven't had the heart to watch it. I don't know. And, and this past uh, summer while I was uh, camping, I read the lost by Jack Ketchum about, a murder that happened in the sixties and the people got away with it and the repercussions of it 25 years later. Uh, I've seen the movie of the lost. I oh, haven't this, read the I book. Didn't even know but... it was a, I didn't even know it was a, a movie. Yeah it it's, is, yeah. it's very upsetting to watch. Yes. Is it? 
Okay, yes. I gotta look it up. Is there is there a, a star or anybody in it of note? Mm, I don't think no. so. Not in that one. I I, li- I liked it because the actual novel itself, you can go 150 pages with it without anything graphic happening. It's just the stories playing out, but the scenes where it does stuff happens, you're like, oh boy. I I love it. Yeah. I love it. But again, that's that's Bill. That's not Joe Blow. Everybody else, right? Now, the- yeah, Jack Ketchum definitely like if you're into extreme horror, like you know, visceral descriptions, a lot of body trauma, that kind of stuff. Um, Ketchum's stuff is great. He's a really good writer, and it's it's not a tough read in, in the sense of reading it. It's like Stephen King isn't a tough read. Uh, Hemingway yeah. isn't a tough read. It's easy to read. Yeah, it's easy to read the words on the page. Yes, I will agree. I'll concur there. Uh, catch him also for fan, for people who are not necessarily uh, big fans of the supernatural in horror novels. Is although sometimes his stories do incorporate it. Mo- by and large, I think he tends towards what I guess people would consider the real world horror. You know, a yeah. lot of his is more grounded. I don't know if it's always grounded in reality, but it's grounded in things possible. that could actually happen yeah. to human beings. It's, yeah. it's a it's a, in, a, in the possible. It's a, a study of human nature. His novels are more of now. I know uh, he did. I think he wrote the woman. I haven't read. I, I love the the movie, but I haven't read the book. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to deep dive every time I'm at a thrift shop. Every time I'm at a uh, a sale of of any kind of church charity sale, bazaars, whatever. I always look up for Jack Ketchum novels because you can usually pick them up for fifty cents to a dollar, and I, I just want to get as many of them as I can. The, yeah, yeah. Sadly, he he passed. He died of cancer in uh, twenty eighteen. Oh, did he? he? I'm, I was not even sure. Yeah. Okay, so there's. Pro- I'm willing to guess he maybe has twenty twenty five books. So I'm. I really want to explore further. Yeah. The last one. The last one I have isn't horror, and it's a nonfiction book. But with Nathan having been a critic and Victor having been in the entertainment industry, I'm curious what your thoughts were. The one that I read in high school that I loved was Stephen King's book on writing. Oh yeah. I I really liked it because it was, it's not a long book. It's maybe 200 pages and it basically takes you through. If you want to be a novelist, this is what you do. And, and what I got out of it was write about what you know. If you're from the East coast, write about stuff on the East coast. Stephen King doesn't write about stuff in California. Stephen King doesn't write about stuff going on in Bangladesh. He reads, writes about stuff that happens in the Northeast of the USA. And all, all of his novels are in the Northeast of the USA, pretty much. You know, write yeah. from your heart. Have a, a things that you have. Uh, have a criteria. Have a storyline. And just kind of go with it. And Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, that's, that, that, you know, when you're 15 and you're hearing a guy of such renown saying, just write about what you're comfortable with. You're like, wow, it can be that simple. Yeah, um, that that's I found I find that that's true. Uh, I mean, um, also there's research. So you know what you haven't experienced in life, you can research. Uh, the the key is not falling into the research rabbit hole, so that you know you're still researching your your great novel idea seven years later. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a really good book. I, he's got great advice. Um, you know. It, I think just make sure to take it with a grain of salt that, you know, there is only one Stephen King uh, and uh, 
it's not terrible if you uh, work your ass off writing and don't become as successful <laughs> as Stephen King, because uh, chances are that's not going to happen. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, definitely everything that uh, that King says in that book, I found to be true. Um, I think also just the stars were right with him and that, you know, those types of books weren't really popular before he started writing them. Um, and, uh, maybe that's just because he's so damn talented. Um, or maybe that's because it's a matter of timing. Uh, but also he had the English background, you know, as an English teacher before he started writing fiction and he also had a wife that encouraged him. Like he, he famously threw out Carrie, uh, unhappy with it as all writers always are with their work. Uh, and she was like, yeah, it's not too bad. Maybe you should try sending it in. <laughs> and, uh, that's when his career started. So, I remember that story. Just uh, it's almost cringy. Like uh, that was just yeah, that was sitting like, in the middle we, of the trash can, and, if, and being the chain smoker. If a couple of those ashes had gotten at it, you know, <laughs> exactly. We almost didn't have Stephen King. Think about that. I mean, that is the the royal lineage. No pun intended, but the royal lineage of horror writers in America is like uh, Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, Stephen King. That's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, it would be tragic to think of a world without without him and and all the people, including me, that he inspired. Um, but yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a really it's a really um, it's a it's a it's a tough topic. Uh, I think in I, I don't remember the name of this book um, off the top of my head, but I can uh, send it to you, Nathan. Um, uh, before you post this episode. And um, there's another book about writing that talks very plainly about structure. And um, the author is the same guy that wrote First Blood. Um, oh, so yeah. He's a, yeah, um, he's a popular novelist. Uh, but I don't remember his name right now. But it's that's a really good book. David Morrell. David yeah, David, David Morrell. Yeah. Have you, I was gonna, it, it's called Secrets of Writing or something like that. I was yeah. just going to say, Nathan, have you read On Writing? I have, and I I love it. I, I concur with uh, with what Victor said. It's like you know King, but it, it, I think that if you get excited reading, I think the thing that King does well is that, and I don't know how you feel about it, Victor, but he he has had amazing. You know, he will even say himself he's had kind of amazing luck. You know, to do this, and I don't feel he ever quite like flaunts it he he almost wants you to think that it's really easy and wants you to try and do it but that can be deceptive you know as, as victor said but i feel like he wants everyone to feel you know it's the kind of ratatouille like anyone can cook but not exactly but you know yeah. i think he wants to have that populist view the, the encourage that okay you know uh he wants you to go out there and try it and maybe you know some of you will be successful at it some of you won't maybe might not be as successful as Stephen King, but I never feel like he's the, I've got the secret Let here, here it is. You know, he never seems to lord over his success over others. I don't feel. No, I mean, he has done the work and he's done yeah. a lot of it. I mean, I think he has, uh, 70 books. It's written something now, like that. It's crazy. Is, you know, I, I think that's another amazing thing about King is that he has remained inspired for his entire life since he started writing um yeah. and uh, that's really hard to do too. the other thing is yes he he usually plows one out every year at least one before christmas coincidentally enough. <laughs> but but <laughs> but it's not as if it's crap like it's decent material like he hit that the, the whole series of books where he was kind of like doing the uh drugstore dime store novel kind of deal but it's an interesting yeah. concept 
Like it, it's yeah. not like he's just going on the tropes of scary ghosts for ten for ten yeah. books in a row, you know. King's a yeah. good enough writer. I feel like even in some of the books that I really don't care for, and there's a couple of them that I feel like they most of them have something good in them. Uh, that would be my thing. I, there are times I, you know, I remember Robot Chicken. I believe did a little skit or something of him, and uh, it was that or Family Guy. I don't remember, but they called up King, and his agent is like, "We need a story," and he's like, "It's going to be a story about." And he's glancing around his room, a killer lamp. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. There are times when he puts novels out, and you're like. Or, or short stories even. I remember he wrote an entire short story about a man trapped inside of an outhouse that had been pushed over a cliff. And yet, he's such a Stephen King that by the end of the story, you're like, wow, that was a rough, that was a tumultuous <laughs> couple of uh, minutes I spent reading that. <laughs> but the thing is, yes. people might get intimidated by a King novel. Like, you look like, a, I, yeah. I had a buddy in high school that read the unabridged version of The Stand. And yeah. when I was in high school, you know, at 15, 16, he's reading a 2,000 page book. You're like, wow. But when you actually yeah. read Stephen King, it is not a tough read. Like no. his stuff is very accessible and easily read by anybody who, I mean, starting from about grade seven or eight onwards. Yeah. You said night shift and we didn't, again, we didn't cover uh short fiction, but partially because we had done an episode on that array. We were done. And I think it is, it's true that novels are in a different form. I would actually say, even though I love a lot of Stephen King's novels, I think his short fiction not saying that some of the short fiction is better than some of the novels he's written but i really get excited when he releases short fiction and not every collection of short fiction of his has been amazing but i a night shift might be one of my favorite books he's done uh yeah. because of how varied the stories in that collection are how good a lot of them are uh he was also at a point where he was writing you know, he writes an introduction to Night Shift where he kind of talks about the differences he perceives in short stories versus long fiction. And I think he kind of nails it because they, they, they take little bites out of you, you know, Night Shift particularly. He's got a lot of hard-hitting little stories there. A lot of them have been made into movies, but a lot of them are still the, – the forms there are, are the best. He wrote a story that uh, – it's a longish one that opens that book. I believe it's called Jerusalem's Lot. And it's just been turned into a uh, a series, a very good series with Adrian Brody um, called Chapel Wait on Ep on Epics, I think, and oh, cool. that's very worth seeing. Uh, he he he's got some great stories in that collection, and there's one story in there called The Last Rung on the Ladder that is not mm -hmm. horror at all, but I think is a wonderful a wonderful story uh, of yeah, of any genre. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. That's the thing with King is he can. He can get all the emotions that he gets out of his novels, and sometimes in a couple in a couple pages, you know, or, or you know, with these little stinging bits. S uh, Skeleton Crew is another wonderful yeah. collection, and I think Different Seasons, which now deals with the novellas, some of his best stuff is in Different Seasons. Yeah, when you think in, in my, when you, my humble opinion, when you think of like the Langoliers, what a great story! And and he did it in like 120 pages, like he didn't. You know, he could have milked it, but he didn't. It, it, the story's done. The story's done. And that's what he milked it in the miniseries. Oh, in the miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> now, was that, you know, was that NBC saying we got to make this a four parter? I don't know. That's, I wouldn't bother with that <laughs> personally. It's uh, uh, that was four past midnight day, but different seasons has uh, the, the, the story that inspired Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. 
Uh, it has apt pupil. Yep. It also has a, a, one that never was uh, adapted, which is an interesting story and pays a lot of homage to some of the older writers like uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and things like that. Uh, and it's called the breathe a breathing lesson, I think. And then there's one. Uh, the last one is the is the body that was turned into Stand by Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I read those when I was again about that age, thirteen, fourteen, and they make an impression on you. And yeah. so like watching oh, yeah. stand by me, you're like, Hey, I just read that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's one of the really cool things about Stephen King is, is that you, you can read him, uh, you know, maybe at risk, um, when you're 12 or 13. Yeah. Uh, but as an old man, uh, like I am now, I mean, I, I am still reading his novels. I, I just read Billy Summers and I read The Outsider before that, um, and they're both really good, uh, yeah. and I appreciate them as an adult, you know, from a different perspective. For those looking for the, the – King is – ironically, Clyde Barker has written more kid-friendly books than Stephen King. <laughs> but King did write a fantasy novel that I – so wild because this stuff doesn't happen anymore. But back in the 90s, I walked into a Dollar Tree, and they had a uh, – a hardcover with slip cover and everything copy of the eyes of the dragon by Stephen King, mm. uh, which is a fantasy novel that is written at a level. It's a, it's a fantasy story and those characters do end up showing up in the dark tower eventually. And it's about two brothers and uh, it has Kings and dragons and magicians and all of that stuff in the story. And it's uh it is accessible for like that, 12 13 year old that you're talking about there so well, the, the other one uh, kind of in that vein with king and straub with the talisman that's true the talisman's a little bit closer to something yeah yeah that's a good call yeah. Yeah. so i didn't read the sequel yet the black house which is several years old now but yeah so when we're wrapping all this up i know you guys are gonna do yours your uh uh honorable mentions and such but the question i wrote down was which you guys can pontificate on did books <laughs> did books influence your movie watching or did movies affect your reading material both um yeah i i started re yeah, i read king and then yeah king was probably my gateway author uh unless maybe i read something in elementary school that inspired me to read horror but um i i, I remember buying the stand uh, at that age. And, um, it was great. And I read the shining shortly after that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that those definitely got me into, it, I, I definitely, I read the shining before the movie came out. Then I went to see it and, um, it was, uh, it was an experience. So that was a case of the book having inspired me to see the movie. Um, but in many cases it worked, the opposite way, um, like in the case of David Lynch's Dune, I saw the movie first, then 10 years later, <laughs> I read the book. So, How old were you when you read The Shining? Probably like 12 or 13. Okay, yeah, that that's about the same point in time, like I was, I was reading Stephen King. The answer question, Bill, I think it, it's definitely both, but I do think that you know, it was interesting that my reading, when I was reading, I didn't always see a movie and then instantly say, I want to run out and read the book. But what might happen is I would see, uh, seeing some of the Stephen King movies actually made me not want to go grab their counterparts, but grab the Stephen King stories I hadn't read, at least initially at that point, you know. Mm -hmm. So, like, when... Uh, and I was in like a sixth grade, so it's probably around the age. What happened was I went, we were, it was a 
it was a like July 4th barbecue. And one of my aunts was giving away her like old paperbacks of Stephen King. And so she laid them all out there and I'm like, and I, did I grab the right one? I don't know, but I grabbed the dark half. <laughs> it was the first Stephen King book I ever read was the dark wow. half, which, um, which is interesting because there's still elements and phrases and things he wrote in that story that, uh, have, have stuck with me, even though I don't think I ever read it again after that. And it's not not saying it's a bad book. And they made, and actually, I think the Romero movie field version of it isn't really that bad. It's it's a halfway decent movie, I think. Um, yeah, me too. And I went to actually see it at the theater only because it it, it was a couple years later, and it was that first Stephen King book that I read. So I was really anxious to see it, and I was happy when I when I did see it. Um, but so yeah, there were but there were cases like dracula and having seen all the movie versions of dracula when i finally got around to picking up the bram stoker novel it was more because i i was interested in well what did bram stoker do with this you know so um which is strange now because i was such a movie fan you know that uh when i watched a movie i didn't necessarily want to run out and read the book but i would find my way to the books because i was reading a lot more than i was watching movies back in those days honestly um Mm. it's probably different now because i don't find quite as much time but then I was devouring books actually at a faster, probably not a faster rate than watching a movie. But if you gave me the choice, hey, Nathan, we'll go to the movies or you want to go to the library and grab a book and then go back home and read it. I was choosing that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, having not heard you guys did, uh, list so far, did anybody mention Peter Benchley's Jaws? Strangely yeah. enough, we did not. Oh, I was just curious because that's um, one I haven't got to. And I've heard that the book is, I wouldn't say vastly different, but there are certain aspects to the book that didn't make it to the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, in that case, I would say the movie is superior. There, yeah. What was cut was a lot of melodrama and, um, you know, there's like this mob thing that the mayor's involved with and, I mean, that stuff's fine. Like it's, it's fine in the book. It it just, it it makes you go, Oh, it makes you feel the danger before the shark danger happens. Um, But uh, the movie's just so it's so focused on, on what it is that uh, I, I I think I prefer that. Yeah. To me, and this is just my own opinion. This is where I think the masterpiece element, you know, is applied to jaws. The film is jaws. The book, in my opinion is, a pretty good like paperback thriller, you know, I, I guess that's, that sounds diminished or not diminished. It sounds like I'm sort of like, you know, demeaning it or something or, or maybe uh, knocking it down a peg. And I don't really mean it that way, but I don't know that if I came to jaws and there was no film version, if I would feel about it, you know, the way that the Spielberg movie made me feel. Mm. Gotcha. So here's one where um, the, where the movie elevated the source material. Personally yeah. speaking, um, and I now so I I don't know if Victor's the same way, but I obviously came to it from seeing the film first and then the book after, uh, many years after. There is one, uh, I don't know if it maybe could have possibly squeeze into my, my honorable mentions that I think goes the opposite way in the Jaws vein is that mm-hmm. in 95, I think, uh, Douglas Preston and Lincoln S. Child wrote a novel called Relic or The Relic. Oh, The Relic. Uh, yes, yes. About a uh, basically taking all the elements of Jaws and transposing them to a museum uh, where a killer is on the loose. And this killer may or may not be a prehistoric monster. So it was sort of had the best bits of Jurassic Park and the best bits of 
Jaws sort of rolled into this story. Uh, and this novel, I think, is super intense. I read this. Uh, now, this is one I read because I knew there was a film coming out. And I, the the Peter Hyams movie from 1997, it came out in January of 97. I, it's a fun, like, silly monster movie that lines up perfectly with the movies coming out at the time, like Deep Rising and Mimic and stuff like that. And I enjoy that movie as, like, a B-movie you know, giant monster runs amok special effects movie. I think it's fine. But the novel is really intense and really cool and really uses that museum as a backdrop because a museum, a natural history museum is such a cool place to set a thriller, I yeah. think. And uh, have you read the book? Uh, either one of you guys read it? No. Nope. Just seen the movie. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, there's a – if you've seen the movie, then you know – and it's not necessarily all that surprising. There is sort of a twist that happens in that movie, you know? Uh, and in the book, that is like a final denouement. You go through, you and you, you experience that entire novel, not even contemplating that twist until the last paragraph of the last page. Yeah. So uh, as you can see, there's a lot that's going different. If people who enjoy that novel, the, 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 um, Pendergast character that's almost uh take you know he's he's a combination character in the movie uh but there's a agent Pendergast who's going on to have an entire series written by those two uh authors that's decent if you enjoy uh you know my my parents are big fans of it uh they're they're individual mystery stories sometimes they verge on the supernatural or the science fiction and the Rel relic's a good starting place it was the first one where this character was introduced it's a lot of fun uh at some point they wrote a short they collaborated and wrote a short story with rl stein where he in he came up against slappy the dummy but uh, i think that was done <laughs> for charity possibly <laughs> so uh, and wait, who who are the authors of the relic again? Douglas Preston. Let me get this right. But it's Douglas Preston and Lincoln S. Child, I believe, are the authors of Relic. They've written a around the same time, and these are these are story. This are this story is very much grounded. I want to say the reason it probably didn't make uh, that it wasn't as much on my mind for the list is that it's a little bit more science fiction. You know, it's a horror story. But they really try to build a sense of science fiction into it. Uh, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. And th this was their first one. They did write a sequel to it called Reliquary that came out the summer of 97, shortly after the movie released. And ironically, deals a lot with monsters down in the um, in the old neglected parts of New York beneath the subways, much like Mimic. <laughs> so it yeah. was funny because Mimic almost felt like an adaptation of this book that came out about the same month that that movie was released. I remember reading Reliquary at the same time I went to see Mimic at theaters and they sort of, I think they both sort of influenced the, each other in my mind. So, uh, but I highly recommend this one. And if you like this, there's another 10 or 15 novels that you can jump into when this one is done. So cool. I can't wait to read this. Yeah. I, I do remember it in, uh, when it came out, I just, I thought it was more science fiction end of it. And I tended to go towards the horror end of it. Yeah. It's, it's very much a horror story too. There are, uh, brains are getting torn out and eaten. So, uh, it, mm -hmm. it is very much a horror story. And again, jaws, uh, jaws, the film is maybe more the inspiration here than jaws, the, the, the book, but it's very, it's very good. Uh, it is definitely a sort of um, it's propulsive and, and Bill, it's like you said, you can kind of just jump right into the story. It's written very straightforward. Uh, a lot of characters, a lot of suspense. So recommended. And uh, Victor, how about some of your honorable men? Did you have anything else, Bill? I'm sorry. No, not at all. I just, I'm 
happy that I finally got to be part of the discussion and that I will try to read as much as I can between the days of June 28th and uh, September 7th. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's the break. Um, yeah, that's kind of cool. Uh, I, I, I love deadlines, you know, uh, I mean, I love them and hate them, but, uh, but I, I, I love them in that it, it always gets me to finish something where, you know, I don't have a boss telling me they need it. Um, and, uh, same thing goes with books. Like, you know, it's like, well, I only got two weeks before I got to start this crazy assignment. So I better finish this book by then. <laughs> then you schedule time. Um, but yeah, I, I got a couple of, um, uh, honorable mentions. Um, we talked about Stephen King. Uh, I, I loved the stand. I think, yeah, I, I think I mentioned that that was the first book I ever read by him. Um, it, it was the edited version. So you didn't um, get the 2000 pager. No, that was the only one that was available at that time. And I just picked it up at the supermarket, you know, um, and I just kind of tossed it in the cart when mom wasn't looking. And, um, it was uh, it was great, and uh, you know if if you like uh, TV shows like The Walking Dead, um, it's very much inspired by The Stand in in the yeah. you know the fact that it's a post apocalyptic world and their characters are the folk they're great characters uh, and it's like well humanity has come down to these people uh, and um, their differences become very uh, important <laughs> in the book yeah. Um, but yeah, I also like from his later works, I would say, uh, the novella N though, just the letter N is Ooh, yeah. superb. Like it's very Lovecraftian. Um, but I can't imagine them ever making this to a movie because the way it goes into the, the, the person, you know, the accountant's mind is, uh, awesome. Um, it's a really cool really cool story. That's not, not quite a novel, but it's longer than a short story. It's about like 110 pages or something like that. Um, then, uh, yeah, I already mentioned the cabin at the end of the world. That's probably my favorite, my personal favorite, um, uh, Paul Tremblay book. Um, again, the apocalypse, uh, strange, but, um, but it's not quite as scary as head full of ghosts. So it didn't, it didn't make it onto the top 10. Uh, and I also wanted to mention, um, talking about uh, like universal monsters, uh, kind of stuff. Um, interview with the vampire, uh, was a fantastic novel that kicked off a thousand other novels, um, and a bunch of imitators and a movie. Um, and also the howling by Gary Brandner. Yeah. Um, it's also really good. Um, the, the, um, the, the movie didn't really catch on my mind that well. I remember thinking it was okay, but, um, the book really, um, really shocked me. Like it was uh, very explicit and, um, and, uh, very exciting. And it was like, Oh, a modern werewolf story. This is really cool. Um, and, uh, I think there's two of them. There's the howling and the howling too. So, uh, those are good. And, um, yeah, I think those are, those are my honorable mentions. They got all oh, oh uh, just well. wait, uh, sorry. Just, uh, yeah. One, one more thing. Um, yeah, Bill, Bill mentioned, um, Jack Ketchum and I just wanted to mention another, another author that I've read a little bit more of, um, uh, Ed Lee or Edward Lee. Um, he's another extremist, uh, American horror writer. And, um, he wrote two books that really um, are, they're very shocking uh, and they stayed with me and they're definitely horror books. Uh, one of them is Portrait of a Psychopath as a Young Woman. 
And um, it was co-written with a private investigator that specializes in the kind of detective work that they do <laughs> in the novel. It's very, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's excellent um, and very graphic. Uh, and the other uh, book by Ed Lee uh, is Header, which is... <laughs> It's, oh no! <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's just so it's so much more revolting than I could possibly describe on this on this uh, podcast. It, but if you like extreme horror, that's a good example. I, 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 I actually think I've read one of his. What's it called? Uh, the House. I think I've read The House. By Edward Lee. Yeah. Again, I've read the uh, Wikipedia synopses of some of his books, <laughs> and that's about where I stopped. <laughs> yeah, Hedder, Hedder in particular. Um, yeah, he writes extreme content, but he's also very good. He's just a very, um, uh, you know, succinct writer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, kind of just Leave goes your own risk. Goes goes for it. Um, got a lot of different ones i can make you know one that i don't believe we mentioned and you mentioned universal ours we haven't really talked too much about mary shelley's frankenstein um yeah which is a which i do believe is a great novel uh it's strange for me to say this because i obviously did see the boris karloff film first and but for me those were always two very different things like when i read mary shelley's frankenstein i always sort of processed it processed it as a gothic you know, it was gothic, but as a uh, science fiction story, really, uh, yeah. it is definitely it definitely has horror elements. It is written a bit like a ghost story. I get the horror uh, is definitely there, but I still kind of process it. It's very thoughtful. It's very sort of um, and really, when you consider the time that it's written and everything that it precursors, it's 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 very uh, kind of prophetic in some ways. And so I still process it kind of as science fiction. And that's probably one of the reasons it maybe didn't break the list. I also find like Dracula, you know, not that they're really comparable. They were just so, um, you know, they were both, they both inspired great monsters and they were both so uh, visionary for their time. But for me, Dracula is just a lot more vivid as a story. Yeah. But that, that shouldn't prevent anyone from finding Dra uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and reading it. Cause I think it's, it's another book that the experience is very different than you might be thinking. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Uh, and there's a uh, there's a TV series if you like more along the lines of what Mary Shelley wrote um, with uh, with her with her creations. Um, there's a TV series called Penny Dreadful. Yeah, that I'd I'd recommend the first season. I don't know about the rest, but um, the first season is very good, and and it has yeah. uh, Frankenstein's monster in it. It is, and, oh, and, and Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, but, but they're all they're all there. Um, yeah. So a couple others uh, that I, I just wanted to mention. One that I uh, that very that played with. It was on the list. It was off the list. There's there so many haunted house books on the list initially. One of those was The Woman in Black by Susan Hill. Um, and I, I yes, this if you're hearing that title and you're thinking, didn't they make a movie? Of this wasn't Harry Potter in it. The answer is yes and yes. But the have, has anyone here read The Woman in Black? No, no. no came out in 1983. It is the source material for that film. It came out in 2012. Actually, Hammer Studios, sort of the, the attempted resurgence of Hammer. And I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. That movie comes off like a pretty basic gothic horror yeah. story. I don't think it's yeah, terrible, it's, but it is also... I was going to say, I have, ahead, I, have, I have seen it. And yeah, it was middle of the road. I found it middle of the road. 
Yeah, it was middle of the road, but I would argue that the novel that it's based off of, which was written in 1983, is actually very good, very creepy, very freaky, and to me was written at a level that made it as vivid as The Turn of the Screw by Henry James and as vivid as The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. I mean, this, and it inspired the BBC, I think it was BBC TV movie in the 80s, is much more effective than 2012 film and there was a stage production of this that from what i understand is outstanding and it's super scary just in what is done with a rocking chair <laughs> so if you love stories like the changeling the the, the george c scott uh uh you know uh, film and things of that nature the woman in black the novel i would recommend that both of you read this because it's been overshadowed uh, by by I, I, the the problem of the 2012 movie is that it was just so it was just so lackluster. I thought it was fine, but it did not remotely capture the strengths of that book. That book is very freaky, and I highly if you're looking for a gothic ghost story and you want like the creepy sort of uh, ambiance of ghost stories, you're not as much into the violence and the kind of really intense horror stories. The Woman in Black is intense, but in a psychological sort of way. Highly recommend that to anyone who's listening to this who wants a good ghost story. We've mentioned a lot of them on here. That one came so close to making the list. Um, another author I was turned on to by Victor last year and actually mm-hmm. is also named Victor. It's Victor Lavelle. And mm-hmm. uh, he's got a lot of great stuff. In fact, he's got a novel called The Changeling, which is really good. The Devil in Silver is the one that pops into my mind. Yeah. Uh and he, uh, that I recently read, it's very good. It would make a good one-two punch, honestly, with some of the books by Stephen Graham Jones that we mentioned um, before. So, uh, yeah, Victor Lavelle. And you've read a couple of his books, right, Victor? Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've read that one. I liked it. And um, The Ballad of Black Tom, which was just totally blew my mind. It was fantastic. Yeah, the, the Ballad of Black Tom it's probably a little bit better. I That was the one I went to first because that's the one you recommended on the show last year. And then The Changeling I would also recommend, which I just recently recently read. Uh, vampires. There's a book, and I, I didn't know what to do with this. It's such a strange, weird take on vampires, and it's kind of mind-blowing too. But it maybe does cross over towards science fiction a little bit more. This is Fledgling by Octavia Butler. And mm. Octavia Butler, I love her short stories. I think uh, I can't remember if she. I think she may have only read wrote two novels, and this was one. And I, uh, incidentally, it was written in 2005, the year I got married. And when I was on my honeymoon, I picked up a couple of paperbacks. One of them was from a Buick Eight by Stephen King, and the other one was this. <laughs> this is a weird. Mm. This is a super strange. If you think uh, as weird as the things have been done with vampires in, like, say. Uh, let the uh, let the right one in, or in like the Anne Rice novels. This one is strange. You've got a seven. This young girl, she seems to have uh, amnesia. She can't quite remember who she is, but then she's learning later that she is this decades old vampire, and that she's also been kind of genetically modified. But when they get into the various uh, incarnations of what these vampires do and how they interact, it's very, uh, it's very. Um, crazy it's you know it's kind of a clyde barker eat your heart out like where these stories go is very strange very kind of uh say taboo shattering in some ways but you if you've read any octavia butler she likes to really 
look into what human beings kind of think of as their our labels, you know, and, and beyond the labels, what makes us human and what about our relationships and our sexual proclivities and our emotions. And uh, she just tears all that apart in this novel. And it's vampires like you've never seen vampires. And I highly recommend it. Cool. Awesome. Cool. I haven't seen it or read it, so I'd love to. Um, yeah. Joe, Joe Hill's a good writer, too, who is, of course, Stephen King's son. And uh, I think uh, Heart Shaped Box is a good one to start with if you want to read some Joe Hill. Laird Barron, The Croning, is a crazy novel. I don't know if you guys have read that one. Um, I haven't but- read that one. I, yeah, I, I read a like a crime mystery novel by him um, that was pretty good. Yeah, this is full-blown sort of uh, – this is in the Lovecraft, uh, Richard Matheson vein. And if we're talking Matheson again, he wrote an awesome haunted house book called Hell House, which was made into an awesome movie called The Legend of Hell House. Uh, and yeah. if you want a scary haunted house book, uh, Hell House is it. It's uh, it's pretty. Yeah, I'm pretty sure pretty I've cool. read that one and seen the movie, and I enjoyed both. Yeah, of them. it's it's intense. It's a it's a horror story. Yeah. Um, man, yeah. I could just I could go on, so I should probably just stop. But there's a <laughs> lot of great stuff yeah. out there. No, I just wanted to mention with Matheson, there's there's a really short anecdote about uh, going back to what you guys were talking about earlier about, you know, write what you know um, that Stephen King wrote in On Writing. I mean, um, there is a, there is a time where, uh, well, uh, Ramsey Campbell was writing like pastiches of Lovecraft, um, basically his earlier stuff. And he sent them to Lovecraft and Lovecraft was like, you know, it really, even though these stories are set in New England, it really doesn't work, right? It's not really like that, you know? Um, And he's like, why don't, Lovecraft told Campbell, why don't you just write stories about where you grew up? Um, (laughs) The way I wrote about New England. And that's when Campbell just took off as a writer and started writing better and better stuff. And he's good Uh, too. We didn't really mention him, but he's got some good novels to his name. Yeah, no, he's great. Um, The last one I want to mention, just because I I love the author a lot, and I actually recommended, and we read one of his short stories last year uh, for the podcast we did, uh, Victor, where we did talk short stories. That's uh, Robert R. McCammon. Uh, Swan Song is one I really like of his, that if you want to go in that uh, kind of, again, the nuclear war, and it it probably – there it's not like the stand but you could you know it takes another sort of approach it's another one with a lot of these different characters coming up against various um elements as as this apocalypse sort of showdown begins to manifest have you read this one victor Uh, no i haven't read swan song but i have read three or four of his books and he's a very great good writer yeah i think he's also an excellent short story writer i would recommend uh blue world if you want to pick up, uh, like that might be his my favorite thing of his. Uh, Boy's Life was excellent too. He wrote that in ninety one, uh, but he's got several books to his name, and they're all pretty. Uh, the ones I've read have all been pretty good. I haven't read them all. Yeah, I've, I've read a cool. couple. There, he's a good another one of those. Not yeah. that tough a read, but some good stuff in there. Uh, yeah. One, I was um, going yeah. to say. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Just one more novel I thought of while I was sitting here that I really like. Every once in a while, I get into a phase where I love my zombies. Everybody loves their zombies and not everybody, but you go through phases and then you get, <laughs> and, and then you get sick of them because they're on all the bloody time and there's so much crap out there. 
and it, you're expecting me to say World War Z by Max Brooks, but uh, no, it's the one. I don't know if either of you have heard of the author Jonathan Mayberry. Yeah, and Jonathan mm-hmm. Mayberry. I, I, my parents got me one year for Christmas the book Dead of Night, and yeah. I really liked that one because it kind of told the perspective of somebody who's been injected into something and somebody's turning into a zombie, and it kind of has that first person perspective of of it happening and it's it was kind of neat it was kind of you know it wasn't just zombies go out and they kill people and whatever whatever it, it kind of flips the switch kind of like that french film mutants you kind of get that you know inside the head of somebody who's turning so i really like and mm-hmm. if you follow jonathan mayberry on facebook he does a lot of q a's with people who are aspiring writers or just new writers and in the industry and he'll share what he knows with people who want to get into it or and he shares his advice so I'd say go out and check it. So Jonathan Mayberry's got a whole whack of, of books out there. So check him out. I don't, you guys have said you've read him. I don't know what you think about him. Yeah, highly recommend him. He's great. Agreed. And Victor, were you about to say something regarding um, whoever we were just um, talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I was just going to say the, the, yeah. the McCammon books I read were um, uh, They Thirst and The Wolf's Hour. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, they are vampire and werewolf books, respectively. But um, they, I think they were written at a time where people really weren't doing revisionist vampire and werewolf stuff. And those books are uh, sort of, you know, almost like historical, like one's sort of a historical epic and the other is a kind of a disaster movie. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, uh, so it's interesting how, uh, like one of the really things that always blows me away that, that writers do is it's like, well, I'm going to retell the story, but I'm going to do it in this way that hasn't been done. And it's like, oh yeah, that's, I can't believe I didn't think of that. You know, it's a brilliant idea. Um, and he's great at that. So, and I wonder, you know, I haven't looked at this at all, but it does kind of surprise me as we talk that as far as I know, and you guys might be able to, to disabuse me of this notion. I don't think any of McCammon's novels or short stories were made into films. I don't know if maybe, you know, they didn't make deals with the rights, but given the nature of some of the stories, I feel like they certainly could have been. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's almost a little surprising. Yeah. I don't know of one offhand. No. Um, Because you'd think there's there's certain books out there that you're like, how would you ever adapt this? And yet they get adapted. Much like this last one I'll mention. I promise. The last one. David Wong's John dies at the end. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which That's never great. never really came into my head because I was thinking scary, right? We were thinking scary, but this is a great book. I I I what I kind of kept going and then the sequel was called This Book is Full of Spiders. And <laughs> and then then the last one, which was just called What the Hell Did I Just Read? <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. In 2017, I think I think Wong kind of really nails like he understands like the genre and what can go wrong with it and what can go right with it, you know. And yes. um, uh, and it's it, the if you've seen the film, which I really actually think that uh, Coscarelli, I was a little disappointed when I first saw it, but I think Coscarelli did about as best as you could probably do with the budget he had to make that yeah. film. But yeah. The, uh, yeah. Sorry. No. Go ahead. Uh, no, no. I was just going to say the Coscarelli movie. It's kind of it's kind of scene for scene, exactly like the yeah. book, until it's about two thirds the way done. Then it's then it's just the last bit of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's suddenly like, well, there's more here than we could deal with, so we're just going right. to skip a bunch of stuff. But um, 
And the, so the book is just so much more than you can really kind of take in. And I think in like one read, which is what I appreciate because it almost, the book almost challenges you to read it again when you finish with it. Um, yeah. And it, it's sort of written in that, I mean, it's, it's supposedly, you know, the, the way it's written, you're, you're kind of second guessing whether the stuff is real or not, but it's so <laughs> out there. Um, but I would say if you, like in, in the 1980s, they made these kind of movies. But like, if you liked uh, movies that sort of mash up a bunch of themes uh, and make sense of them, like uh, Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai or Big yeah. Trouble in Little China, Land of the or not Land of the Creeps, that's a podcast. <laughs> uh, Night of the Creeps. Um, you know, I, I feel like uh, everything and the kitchen sink, as long as they can find a way to hammer it into the storyline works. And that's what uh, Wong does. <laughs> and he's so many weird asides. Like they're like, I love it to show how he kind of plays with these things. He's got a detective character in there. And the and, and Dave constantly thinks he's Morgan Freeman to the point that it's keep calling him Morgan Freeman, right. <laughs> even though he, <laughs> right. he clearly is not <laughs> right. Yeah, and of course the, the the great moment that precedes uh, this door cannot be opened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but yeah, I, I recommend that one. But oh, you have to go. You have to have a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I'd also say um, "Good Omens" by Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Ooh, uh, yes, falls under yeah. that category too. Like it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's also an effective story. And a decent, they made a halfway decent miniseries out of it a few years ago with um, David Tennant and uh, uh, Michael um, Michael Sheen in the oh cool in the roles yeah, and they it was really good and I think they're they're gonna have a follow up so I remember back in the eighties Terry Gilliam kept trying to make a movie out of it and I kind of wish that had happened or the nineties or whenever it, it came out that'd but, be cool yeah yeah did, did, um, did anybody mention uh, Robert Block. Yeah, no, not no, yet. He didn't. No conversations with, uh, you know, Psycho, Psycho yeah. right? Yeah, and he did a whole series. Like he's a, he's a very prolific writer. I just wonder if anybody brought him up. No, not you did. Oh, there we <laughs> <Yeah>. go. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. I agree with Bill. He's yeah. um, he's he's great. Uh, I I'm really more familiar with his short story stuff. Me too. Um, but it's fantastic. Yeah, there's this this one book that he wrote when he was a, a, a Lovecraft student called notebook found in a deserted house that's really <laughs> so that is that's great that'd probably be in my like top short stories um honestly uh you know and i i gotta admit it's kind of like um i haven't read psycho actually uh yeah, the novel neither. um but uh i'm familiar with a lot of his short his, his short stories and uh that one that you read you just mentioned victor is the one i probably like just about the most but he's got a lot of, of good ones um uh there was one, I think it was the feast in the Abbey that I remember. That's also oh, yeah. a really good, a really good story. And um, man, I went how I always walk out of these episodes. There's <laughs> so many things I want to like read or reread, but um, yeah, there's a lot. Of, and I got, I just have to say again that, you know, there's a lot of really great, we mentioned like Victor Lavelle and Stephen Graham Jones and these, and these varying authors. There's a lot of really good, fiction still being written you know i think one of the cool things about this list is it wasn't just stuff written 70 80 or even you know 30 years ago 
There are a lot of great novels out there. You, you know, my newest book was 2020. I mean, there's just a lot. And there's, oh, you know, we should give a shout out to, to Ira Levin and Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, um, for sure. And I just, it's kind of so many books. It just kind of slipped but my it's mind. It's funny. While so. we were sitting here, I, I went down a list. I just typed in greatest horror novels, uh, whatever. And there was one I came across. I don't know if either of you two have read. I haven't read it. It's from 2018 called Dracul by Dakra Stoker and J.D. Barker, which is supposed to be a prequel to Dracula. Oh, no, which, I have not. Which I, I have not heard Which it. I thought would be totally cool. And I'm, I'm assuming Dakra Stoker either is a relative of Bram or playing off that name for sure. Yeah. So, I, or it's his LARP handle. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But, I, no, but it's, it's set in 1868, and it talks about Bram Stoker, blah blah blah. Cool. So I thought that would be kind of a cool one to read. Yeah, I'm up for for checking that out for for sure. Um, yeah. Anything? Any other ones anybody wants to mention? I think we've I think we've thrown some good titles out there. Yeah, um, yeah like I know for sure that I have, but there's, I mean. In the in the length of time since I've read them, they've rolled off my back. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of great authors and, and horror authors out there. Uh, and you know, I think I think this list there's a lot there's a couple on here I want to read now. The Hatton, uh, Dan Simmons got some shout outs. I would also shout out the Terror that he wrote. That's a really cool and oh my gosh, you know for for Lovecraft, Lovecraft himself. In the mountains of madness. That's that would be my yeah. my novel call for him would be in the mountains of madness. Did anybody uh, mention the, uh, Anne Rice? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, just just when he mentioned, yeah. Oh, mentioned, yeah, okay. yeah. It's weird. Um, the The first book in that series I read was the second book in the series of Vampire Lesta, and um, I went back and then read the first one and I finished them just in time for the third book to come out. Uh, and then I read that and I was on my way, but yeah, they're great. <laughs> you know, uh, we were, oh, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say that I, I think the, besides the physical descriptions, which are amazing that she does. Um, I, I think that uh, it's also their philosophical books, even though they're mainly about vampires, um, they come to, uh, very philosophical questions like, you know, what would you do if you were in this type of situation? Um, you know, so it's, it's just as much about human nature as it is about vampire nature, but um, yeah, they're revolutionary books. The, the other author I never heard anybody mention was uh, Ramsey Campbell. Um, just the, the few minutes ago, we just mentioned him. Oh, did Same you? Deal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, just, just now, like, like about 10 minutes ago, when Victor mentioned him. Okay. We, he didn't yeah, make it on our, um, list to go back very quickly to Anne rice because uh, bill your question was you know the movies influencing the books uh did they make you want to you know read the, the or see the movies or read the books it's funny because i remember reading in and, it, and, and victor i think i'm like you i might have read the vampire lestat around the same time or you know maybe before and so i can't remember which one of these it was in but i had at that point, when I read the book in the mid-90s, I had only seen chunks of the two movies I'm about to mention prior to this. But there's a sequence in, I think it's Interview with the Vampire, where one of the vampires is talking about, you know, it, it, it ends up in the movies where the vampire realizes that the only way he can see the sun, the, the sunrise is to go to the films, go to the movies, in the theaters. Yeah. That's how he got to see sunrise. Well, that was so 
kind of awesome. But there's a one vampire that talks about his experience with watching movies and that these two movies, he's found sequences in both time bandits and blade runner. And specifically the sequence in time bandits where the, where the time bandits are sort of performing for Napoleon on the stage. And he, he mentions that this vampire is talking about the fact that he was so happy. These movies have been made because he can't imagine how many times a human could watch these scenes. Cause he had watched them over and over. And even though he's now been around for quite a while, these sequences seem to speak to him in some way. And though I had seen, parts of Blade Runner and parts of Time Bandits on television. But the, when I read that, I instantly sought those two movies out and they are to date some of my favorite all time fantasy sci-fi movies. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what book that's from, but I want to say Queen of the Damned, but um, maybe it is Queen of the Damned. It was, maybe it was neither of the two I just mentioned. Yeah. It's quite possible. Yeah. yeah but, but yeah, I, I do remember that. Uh, that too. And I also remember she, uh, Rice sort of commented through her characters about how Lestat kind of looked like Rutger Hauer in, yeah. uh, <laughs> in uh, which was probably wishful casting because the movie hadn't been set yet. Yeah. I'm not as big a fan of the movie. I feel, I, I think it's a decent movie, but it's another one yeah. that like, it doesn't quite capture what she had going on in that novel. No. Like the triumph yeah. of what she accomplishes isn't quite captured in that film. Yeah, it's got some pretty great moments, but yeah, uh, yeah it's it's not the experience of reading the book. It very rarely is. <laughs> Any time, you know, not just uh, not just that. But I mean, to be fair, the same the same weekend that movie came out, there was a there was a version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that didn't much capture that book either. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the well, Kenneth Branagh movie, I think, the one with the, where De Niro played the monster. Yes, yes, which is unfortunately not, in my opinion, not great. <laughs> Not great, no. Um, so anything else before we close out? Not we've uh, now mentioned like forty novels. So, <laughs> so people are keeping, happy reading. Everybody, people are keeping score here. You got a couple of pages yeah. worth. Yeah, yeah. You have at least about uh, what now uh, three hours worth of, of book recommendations. That's what happens when you record in two segments, people. Yeah, people people get renewed energy. Yeah, exactly right. But I think it's great. I think that's good. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, all, so, I was going to say, all I can say is, go out there and read. Go to your thrift shop. Go to your library. Go to your local Barnes and Noble and seek some of these out because no doubt they will be there. And and I don't know about you guys, but I personally love going to the thrift shops and just kind of bumbling around garage sales and just seeing what's there. Sometimes the hunt is just as as fun as the read. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, that's one thing you can't really get on uh, Amazon Marketplace or eBay yeah. is that uh, encountering something that you never even thought you'd you'd be in the market for, but it's like, oh, here it is, and it's in pretty good condition. I might read. Like, this. I remember wandering. I was going to say, I remember wandering around uh, a secondhand bookstore in Vermont years ago and coming across a copy of In Cold Blood. Oh, and then yeah. you take that home and Good I'm buddy. like, that's among my top five all-time novels. I love it. And you find it strictly by happenstance. Wow. And that's just one of those, you know, it's meant to be, you know, maybe you're meant to be at that curio shop and, and come across Max Vancito. I don't know, you know. <laughs> yes yeah, it's true uh, yeah I, I I'm afraid that we're losing that as a, as a, as an ultra modern society. But then again, 
you have the three of us, the tastemakers, uh, to help you make right. this decision. Well, where is Victor? Uh, is the yeah. sweet man, and uh, <laughs> Nathan gives you the the really earthy, yummy tones. I'll give you the other end. I'll give you the burnt end. <laughs> give you the other end. Uh, <laughs> the well, you know, and I continue to say this, and it probably starts to people think I have some kind of problem. Is that you never, you know, the only thing you can't get with the Kindle is that awesome old glue smell that gives you the dizzy <laughs> feeling in your head. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't yeah. you can't get that photocopy smell right after the uh, the teacher gives it to you and you sniff. Uh, yeah, I had a copy of Where the Wild Things Are that was literally going like on a vision quest every time you open that thing uh, that I think I got. I picked up at a library. See, I never but... considered that a horror novel, but that is my favorite all-time kid story. My parents had it from way back when. and, though, and the, Oh, it's genius. It's, it's genius. Yeah. And the, I remember my buddy James, who teaches grade seven, goes, I showed it to my kid. And he was scared as heck of the big creature. Hmm. So Yeah, there. As a kid, there was another one I read that was written by the same author that did Alexander in the No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Day, or whatever it was oh, called. Judith, uh, My Mama Says. Oh, Judith, yeah, Judith, Judith like, Viorst. Yes, yeah. Judith Viorst. It did one called, we re, we, we pulled out Halloween every year. It's uh, My Mama Says There's No Such Thing As, and then it's like 30 labels of goblins, witches, vampires, zombies, monsters, and it's got some <laughs> creepy illustrations, and it, it goes back and forth because it's great because it's like, My Mama Says There's Not a Zombie Sniffing Around My hallway slowly creeping up the stairs for brains but you know she said last week that uh my uh that my crayon wasn't missing and it was so sometimes moms make mistakes <laughs> so it kind of goes back and forth <laughs> and it gives the perspective of you know well this is maybe it's not real but you know she's she's been wrong before <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. it's a genius when i when i come across books like that and where the wild things hurts it's a simplicity it just strikes you and you think man i wish i had thought of that yeah but i, um, I, I still do that story every year with regardless of the grade i teach because it's a great visualization and it's like you can the illustrations by sendak you can make posters out of and i'd love to have framed on my wall absolutely yeah. awesome yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Now let's see what we've digressed into: kids' books. That's right. <laughs> hey, but you know, I I thought that movie that Spike uh, Jones made was beautiful. Um, their yeah. film version is excellent, um, and retains a lot of that imagery, but is very different in its own way. Um, yeah, I liked it. Uh, so, Victor, let everybody know where they can find you, and if you have anything coming up uh, that you want to um, plug, go for it. Why, yes. I will have some exciting announcements pretty soon, um, but uh, I can be found, as always, on at Dime Store Caesar uh, on Twitter or Instagram. And um, yeah, uh, I every October I tend to do uh, 31 Days of Horror, where I review a different movie every day, um, just a very short, like, 100 hundred word review. Um, and every November I do noir Vember where I'm checking out uh, a new noir movie, either noir or neo noir uh, every day of that month. Um, so that's, what's going on on my feed right now. But if you want links to any of my work, uh, it's all on there. So, um, that's the best way to get in touch with me. And if you want to just uh, follow me and, and talk about books or, or whatever, by all means, I am available. Very cool. And of course, you can find us at 
uh, Phantom Galaxy at phantomgalaxy at podbean.com. You can also find us. Now we have, we finally have the Facebook group page and it's up. And it's, it's, yeah. we posted things on it. It's impressive how many people have signed up to be in part of that already. So join our community. Tell your friends if they like sci fi, horror, fantasy, action, documentary, anime, anything that's on celluloid, we'll talk about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's been, um, uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, we've we're have a lot of stuff coming up. We've got this episode. We finally do have that uh, th- that anniversary episode that we were originally going to aim for the summer, and, and the summer just became crazy for me and my family in general in in positive ways, but just time kind of eked away. So we have a lot of uh, great. We're going to release it um, here uh, towards the end of November, beginning of December, uh, and. It's going. It's got a lot of different voices that we've all heard from at various points on this podcast and beyond. And it's uh, everyone covering their favorite science fiction films. And Victor, uh, Victor, you're a part of that too. So uh, yeah. we will have that coming up soon. Victor uh, will also be on uh, this this month. As Victor's all over this podcast, you're just like a, another co-host, really, uh, Victor. <laughs> you're. We've got an X Files episode, and we also have the Tales from Phantom Galaxy. So uh, stay tuned for all of that. And if, what we'd love is if you want to head over to the Facebook page, and if you go there. Um, uh, you know what? We've got some books that we're going to give away, so I think we'll announce it on the next episode. But go over to the to the Facebook group page or even the Facebook page for Phantom Galaxy and just uh, let us know what some of your favorite horror novels are. And I'll set up a I'll set up a page over there, and we will uh, we'll be giving away some some horror novels soon. So cool. uh, everyone, thank you, Victor. Again, thank you so much. We love having you on the show. Uh, I I look forward to doing another episode where we talk talk books because I don't think we do that enough. And thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I had a blast. All right. And everyone, that's the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Take care. Bye-bye. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop. A lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.